Welcome to the 14th episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. The joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who and in fact must use them. I'm Siskoid and I'll let you in on all the rules, uh, but first let's welcome my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number 14. It's the Martian Manhunter issue, so of course I had to re-invite Diablo Frank to the show. Hi, Frank. Yeah, I pretty much invited myself. Sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did say that I, you know, once we'd gotten past the halfway point, which was issue 13, I could allow for uh, repeat appearances. I'm not saying that's necessarily what I'll do it each time, but it's now possible. You know, enough people have gotten their turns that I feel free to go back to some people. And I don't think we, we've done anything for just over a year. So it's a good time. So let's talk about the challenges that, that came with this issue. I mean, there are a lot of fantasy characters. Uh, several of them are half-pagers, so it's it's not like there's a lot of meat on the bone. And it's easily the least current-day Earth-1 issue of the series. Out of 18 starring characters, only five are from Earth-1 in the present. So uh, so that's that was a challenge for me to, to, to try to, to fix that up. How about you? Hey, this one was actually a lot easier for me than the, the previous one, for starters, because oh, yeah. I'd already done one. I had a better idea of, of approach. But also, knowing that this was the Martian Manhunter one, it's been living in my brain for a while now. And while the intent was to come at this from how do you do a line revolving around the Martian Manhunter – it began to take on a life of its own as I, I went along. And so while Manor still has a strong presence, the fantasy elements were stronger ultimately. And you just couldn't deny it because it was such a strong presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually was interesting to me because I'm not a big fantasy guy. Growing up in the 80s, I was exposed to a lot of sword and sorcery type stuff. But by the end of the decade, I was already pretty well sick of it, like presumably most of popular culture, even how little of that stuff survived the decade. So I'm not super well versed in DC's fantasy stuff. And it was an opportunity, you know, we're, we're both, we're the kind of people who would go on a show going through it at who's who. So we're obviously like Uber fans and Uber into the research and such, but we all have these blind spots. And for me, it's clear that the fantasy area was one of them. So doing the research alone just kept putting, you know, logs in the fire, you know, just trying to figure out how things would go together and the like. I had the same kind of blind spot because fantasy or sword and sorcery, let's say, because fantasy would be a larger uh, genre, was something that I had an innate interest in because when I was a kid, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of stuff. And I bought a lot of fantasy novels at that point and read a lot of them and really got sick of the tropes of it, you know, just through those different different media. And one of the things that I never quite worked out how to like <laughs> was fantasy. So I have a smattering, you know, a couple issues of Arax, Son of Thunder, a couple issues of Warlord, a couple issues of this and that, Conan, but none of it really grabbed me and none of it, I was buying none of it monthly. I tried a little bit of everything and ultimately it just wasn't the kind of fantasy that I liked in my comics. I mean, I like superhero fantasy better. But we'll talk about our strategies. First, one more time, the rules. Each episode of Who's Editing will go by uh, our line of books, must include a monthly series for every hero, character, or team featured, as well as any non-HQ location. We can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to, but we can only name a single villain of the issue to receive the honor. 
So imagine you were coming back from some crisis or other, perhaps. We can reboot characters. We can use any continuities version. It's really up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. Note that we are each pitching our own ideas. We'll sort of had. We'll have at the end of this two possible lines of books. And listeners, you decide which books you'd actually want to read. We'll actually play that game too, as we'll have just enough money <laughs> to buy one title from the other editor's line. So I'll be taking notes, and I hope you will too, Frank. One of the things, of course, is that, uh, yeah, you know, we each came into this with a specific strategy in working this out. So that's going to color each of our lines. So in your case... I think it's a very involved one. Am I right? Oh, yes. Yes. So you're, you're going to get to see that as we progress. Essentially, knowing that I was going to come at this from a Marshmallow perspective, at least through intent, I was trying to figure out how do you do a line of books on a character that, while certainly prominent in the DC universe, while certainly having a fan base, just is not a breakout character, not a well-received soloist, does not have an extensive catalog from which to draw from. And so immediately I, I have a direction because I don't think you could do that today. It would be very, very difficult to do that today. And so looking at the Manhunter's history, well, when would that be a possibility? And for me, that that golden moment, the chance to grab the brass ring was in 1999. You had JLA, which created the sea change at DC Comics. After the death of Superman, the breaking of the Batman, DC had that big bump from that the shock tactics but they weren't really able to sustain the audience. And that's why you had things like Zero Hour, where you had to come up with these gimmicks to keep eyes on the books. And it was clear that as the decade progressed, they, they were just losing steam. And then you've got Mark uh, Wade on The Flash and uh, Grant Morrison on JLA giving the Silver Age revivalism that pushed DC into the 21st century, essentially. And so... My whole line of books is going to take place in the year 1999. Uh, the idea is that the uh, 1998 Martian Manor series that was launched by John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake, and in my opinion, didn't get the job that I was looking for done, that series is gone. And so I'm going to replace that series. And a result of other tweaks to the timeline, we're going to get the, and I'll go ahead and send this to you now. Countdown to the Millennium. Yes. So essentially, there's a very short window of time where there's enough competition in the comic book industry that DC Comics for, for a number of years would actually put out a catalog once per year of their entire slate going forward. It was not for general consumption. It was given to retailers. And I, I have a complete set of these volumes because, again, uber geek, uber fan. And so I've created a theoretical 1999 catalog to go along with these entries. Okay. <laughs> I guess I have to create a uh, an image gallery now. I was actually – I was going to try to go ahead – I was going to create a PDF, and there's a website that hosts digital magazines where you can actually flip through the magazine on the page itself. So once I've got that set up, I can send it to you, and that might be the easiest way to do this because there's obviously a lot of pages, and they probably, you probably don't want to have to deal with an image gallery as large as this one would end up being. Well, there you go. So I'll put that link in the show notes. And so you can flip along, which gives Frank's line a little boost compared to mine because you won't find any images of mine. 
So <laughs> is there any more to that strategy that, that we have to know before going forward? Uh, it'd probably be helpful. Are you familiar with the Superman 2000 proposal, also known as Superman Now? Infamously, Eddie Berganza, when he came on as editor of the Superman line, was going to you know do a fresh sweep, take the guys who'd been doing Superman titles for pretty much all the 90s off of the books and replace them after he received a proposal that was uh, co-written by Grant Miller, Mark Wade, Mark Miller, and Tom Payer. And essentially what the plan was, was a deboot Superman back to the Silver Age, but obviously doing it in a modern context, making him more powerful and more intellectual. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a go. They'd already let the other creators go. The, there was a little bit of work being done. And then Mike Harlan, I think is a story that he came back from vacation. He hadn't quite given all that editorial power to Braganza yet. And when he found out about it, he blew his top. They tried to rehire the old creators. A few came back for a bridge period. Others did not. And then eventually you ended up with the late 1999 relaunch with Joe Kelly, Jeff Loeb, I think Stephen T. Siegel, very much a softer reboot, you know, not really making any major changes. And Mm -hmm. so part of my idea is, okay, that line did happen. And the fact that they're going so big and and shaking up the DC universe in a way they hadn't since the crisis is inspiring other families to also go big, to expand exponentially and to expand their scope as well as their lines of books, which would help explain why a character like the Marsh Manhunter and some of the other ones that will be featured were given that opportunity. So we're going to be dealing with a bigger DC universe than we've seen since 86, essentially. All right. And so other editors are handling those other families of books. And we're just going to be looking at at yours. Correct. Uh, for me, for variety's sake, I decided to cast myself as a, a sort of Karen Berger and make all the series Vertigo series. I've never done this. Except two, which I just cannot stomach as anything but all-ages content. I think it's pretty obvious. We'll get to it eventually. So almost everything is going to be mature readers with sophisticated writers, not necessarily British, uh, at the helm. Not to say everything is now horror, but rather Vertigo at its most open when it was also publishing weird superhero material, titles with no supernatural elements like they did with uh, the Vertigo Verite kind of specials, uh, straight action like its version of The Losers, sci-fi like uh, Why the Last Man and DMZ. And Sweet Tooth and all of that stuff. I have to point out that one of the things that was fun about our last team up was that we had a very similar mindset going into the the books. And even though we didn't collaborate, we ended up coming up to a lot of the same conclusions about what to do with those books. Uh, You know, the whole great minds think alike or whatever. And I think that probably we both seem to have made a point of going as far away from anything that anybody would have expected as possible. So I'm looking forward to seeing your Vertigo lineup. We both tried to avoid the similarities from last time, which uh, which some people pointed out. So with issue 14 of Who's Who, we have to include a minimum of 19 books in our line and a maximum of 20. Frank, I'm going to hand it off to you first, and we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, and we'll keep our bonus book, if we have one, for the end. So it all starts with the third Luthor, the goody Luthor from Earth 3. So uh, what did you do with this? My first book is CSA, Crime Syndicate of America. The styling is intentionally resembling the JLA shield and later the JSA shield. It's intended to be a part of a family of the big teams. Now, despite the title being CSA, the book really isn't about the Crime Syndicate of America. I look at it as... Challenge of the Super Fiends. 
essentially if we're on Earth 3, we're basically doing the Mirror Universe version of the Justice League. I, I don't want to do a book, which we've seen oftentimes, where let's see how cruel the evil version of Superman is. I'm not interested in that. So what we're going to look at is the good versions of the Legion of Doom, or in my case, Legion of Boon. Alexander Luthor Sr. is a guy who just can't win. That's the one thing that he does have in common with the Lex Luthor of our universe. He's constantly butting heads with Superman, or in this case, Ultiman. And unlike our Luthor, he actually has noble intentions. He wants to make the world a better place. And there's just all these forces aligned stopping him, which I think is something people could probably relate to at this moment in time, and probably throughout time, in fact. So instead of it being all, all about these clashes, if you look at the old Super Friends cartoons, it was always the two parties would battle. The uh, Legion of Doom would seem to have a little bit of an edge, but ultimately the Super Friends would triumph, and then the Legion of Doom would sneak away. Well, that's still the essential formula, except it's what happening is that the Legion of Boon is doing something good. They're having these small humanistic victories, these little incremental improvements in the lives of people on Earth-3, or in this case, I to, to treat them as Earth-cubed, because it's very nice stylized. And telling the stories of people who know that they can't make the world a much better place, but finding the little ways in which they can make it tolerable, at least. In my universe, the JLA Earth 2 graphic novel has been incorporated into the comic book series because there are a few books that are going to tie into Earth Cubed. And I don't think you can do that with a high-priced uh, hardcover that doesn't see a soft cover release for a year, yada, yada. So in our universe, it's part of the JLA series. And also because the, if you look at the artwork, I'm not going to go into the details of the individual characters, but I borrowed heavily from this pitch uh, from a JLA Secret Files and Origin story that was written by Kurt Busiek with art by Ron Garney. Um, I did add in Alex Toth covers, though, just to really sell the Super Friends aspect of it. Starting strong, I think. The Vertigo Luthor, this is kind of my take on the old Luxor stories. Pre-crisis, Lex Luthor had made himself the hero slash tyrant of a planet. Well, my Luthor series actually stars the post-crisis Luthor, a ruthless and crooked businessman jealous of Superman. You know, the, the, the John Byrne version. The world of big business is represented in all its revolting decadence. But here's the twist. LexCorp has invented... I say LexCorp because I don't think Lex ever invents anything. I think he just steals patents from his employees. So they invented a gateway to another Earth where Lex promptly assassinates his alternate self and takes his place, living out his Superman fantasies by turning himself into that world's greatest hero. So the two worlds have very different color palettes, uh, if not art styles. And the theme of the series is seeing how the two roles clash and create cognitive dissonance over time and i will follow that up with luthor 4 which is our next entry i call this book crisis and it spins out of my luthor book by having luthor's son alexander find his abusive father's dimensional portal and go through it except that there's a malfunction and he gets quantum leaped into the multiverse Think of Shade the Changing Man and Animal Man in terms of tone. Young Luthor is psychically sent to different bodies of people across the dimensions. Sometimes it's his other selves, sometimes it's not. He's always on the back foot in terms of what the world is like and having to stop the schemes of alternate versions of his father before he's bounced back into the bleed. So I want this to be a bizarre, comics-fueled exploration of daddy issues, sort of like my life. <laughs> So my take is going to be 
Alex. And if you recall, around the same time period, there was a miniseries called A Bizarro, which followed the life of one of the Bizarros that I understand was actually a pretty well-received book. Uh, well, I'm doing A Lex, Alex. So if you're following the Superman titles in this time period, you'll recall that Lex Luthor had been diagnosed with cancer from walking around the Kryptonite uh, ring to ward off Superman. As a result, he transferred his mind to a cloned body. Unfortunately, the clones turned out to not be long-term solution. They began rapidly aging and becoming decrepit. Uh, that led to the Battle of Metropolis, where Luthor, thinking that he was going to die, decided he was going to try to take all of Metropolis with him. The ultimate resolution was that he cut a deal with the demon Neuron to be given a new, fresh body in exchange for his soul. That happened in Underworld Unleashed. So my twist is that when Neuron got the rights to Luthor's soul, he didn't leave it in Luthor's body. He actually takes his soul and puts it in one of the clone bodies. And specifically, because these characters from Earth Cubed have been coming to Earth, and they know that there's an alternate Lex Luthor, they managed to get some DNA from the various battles and use that to clone a new Lex Luthor in hopes that this new element would have greater stability. So... Because of the altered DNA, because this isn't quite the same Luthor as ours, when this Alex manages to escape from, let's say, Cadmus, for instance, and then he tries to get access to LexCorp, since he thinks that he's Lex Luthor, he really is, since it's Luthor's soul, but he can't get in, because he's not quite the same one. And that alerts the authorities, it freaks out Lex Luthor, he starts sending LexCorp after Alex, and... Alex, of course, has these shades of the Blade Runner replicants where he's uncertain about his expiration date. Uh, the previous clones have gone bad, and especially with Neuron toying with things, the real soul of Luthor in the Alex body just doesn't know how much time he's got left. So he's on the run from not only Luthor, but also there's all these people that hate like Luthor, and you've got a version of Luthor that's extremely vulnerable. So Luthor's ex-wife, the Contessa, is coming after him. A myriad, a woman that Luthor had murdered and ended up being resurrected by the Bloodlines aliens. Well, she's still out there somewhere, and she wants something to do with taking this guy out. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because it always bugged me that they introduced concepts like myriad and the loss of Luthor's soul, and it's never followed up on. So in my little sideline, I'm going to address that. So this soul is running around in the Alex body, and left to his own devices, he realizes that he's going to have to do something dramatic to get out of his circumstance. But also he recognizes that if he doesn't make it, his immortal soul is on the line. And let's face it, immortal soul. And so he has to start thinking, and he also has a, a inborn compulsion because he is derived from the Earth-cubed Luthor to actually do good. Like maybe he should use his brilliant mind to help humanity, if only for the sake of his own immortal soul. And so this book will be written by James D. Hudnall, who did the Luthor biography in the late 80s, also known for ESPers. It'll be drawn by Tom Lyle and inked by Mike Esposito. I hope people are going to go see that catalog because there's art, you've got your logos, and much more of a description going as well, right? Yeah, one of the things I learned from the previous uh, episode was that there's only so much you can communicate in a podcast without it just bogging down and being and then and then and then. So... I try to do the verbal gist of it, and if it's something interesting, you want to read a little bit more of the crazy details, me regurgitating all the re research I did, it's going to be on the paper. Let's keep going. The next character, finally we get a fantasy character. I have always said machiste for this character. According to the uh, pronunciation key in the book, it's, it's machiste. What's your project for this one? And I'll be honest, I, I don't think I ever checked the pronunciation, but machiste 
I grew up in Southeast Houston. I've got a little bit of a little caliente in there. So it sounded right to me to say machiste. So that's, that's what I always did. The reason why I would ever say that though was because I was a fan of Rimco action figures. And one of the lines that they put out that was on the cheap, the discount master of the universe was the uh, lost world of the warlord. And Mishiste was one of the characters in that lineup. Uh, He was the only African character in that lineup. I have to make sure I stop at African. Really, that's not even correct. He's a black person from a fantasy world where there is no Africa. So, uh, And that's something that we're kind of dealing with. Now, my take is a riff on 1979's What If Conan the Barbarian Walked the Earth Today? This is kind of the core of, of the whole fantasy thing that I'm doing here. One of the things we're spinning out of is DC One Million. And you'll recall that you had Solaris, this tyrant son. Supposedly, this thing's going to go on and plague Superman throughout his existence. It's going to play into All-Star Superman, which was Grant Morrison's effort to reclaim some of what he'd intended to do with Superman 2000 pitch. Solaris is a son that was so powerful, it actually created pocket universes in its orbit. And so a lot of these fantasy worlds that we the thinkers say the hidden world of Skartaris inside the Earth, well... Anybody who knows anything about science knows that's impossible. So Skartaris isn't in our Earth. It's in this parallel universe wherein Solaris is the sun of this world. Well, when Solaris is defeated, then all these universes, all these worlds that were created by the enormous gravitational pull of this artificial sun, they all go dark. And so all these people that were on these worlds have to have some place to go. So the heroes, of course, escort them to different planets. And one of those planets is, of course, Earth. Given that Skartaris had closer ties to Earth than any other place, tons of people from Earth make their way to Skartaris and back. It just made sense for most of the people from Skartaris to come to Earth. A lot of them end up in America. And among them is Machiste. Well, the thing is, Machiste is sometimes thought of as sort of a sidekick to the warlord character. But this dude was a warrior king. The weird pointy helmet that he wears all the time, that's the crown of his rulership, you know? So when he gets to Earth, he doesn't have any applicable skills here. You know, he's not going to go working at a bank or something. So he, of course, is going to be like, well, I'm a warrior king, so I'm going to make a new kingdom. And, you know, you're in the United States of America. Making a kingdom outside of the norms is criminal. And so he's essentially the the ruler of this underground empire where you've got thieves guilds, you've got you know drugs, you've got a lot of stuff going on. You may not approve of it, but that's the way people got things done and got their wealth throughout most of human history. And so that's what he's essentially doing. He's doing the same thing that Conan did back in that What If, where he's creating an, a criminal empire. He also has at his side Jennifer Morgan. Now, one of the things that screwed everything up was that Solaris's fantasy realm was also a place in which mages, sorcerers, would tap into those universes to get their power. Those universes aren't there anymore. So the power sources have been unplugged. And so you've got all these people trying to, you know, figure out how to get by in a world when they're used to magic. There is no magic. Well, Jennifer Morgan, of course, she was from Earth. She goes to Skartaris. She becomes this extremely powerful sorceress. And now she's on Earth with no powers. And she's freaking out. She basically has a Mohawk Storm moment where having lost powers, having lost most of the people that she knew, she and Mashiste have to figure out what life is going to be like in this world and specifically in Atlanta, Georgia. And so she's his partner and they're working together to build this empire. And that's the essential tale. Now, the problem too is, as mentioned, not everybody is going to be on board with Machiste creating a kingdom in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of the groups is the Manhunter cult, which we're going to get into a little bit later. But the gist of it is that 
you have a righteous intention with the Manhunters from the very beginning, when the Owens create them. And there are offshoots of the Manhunters that are actually wanting to do good, that are trying to go up against criminals, for instance. And in Lhasa, this uh, giant Yeti-looking creature that was responsible for a lot of what happened with the Manhunters, he's been on Earth for most of history. He was the one who built the Manhunter cult that eventually roped in uh, Mark Shaw, for instance. And so he's trying to reclaim his brand, create a new group that's going to deal with all the bad stuff that's happening in the world since Solaris has been defeated. And so you've had this huge influx of beings. And so he's got a whole group of people that he's employing to stop guys like Machiste. And one of the people that he's got working with him is Arak. It's not the one from the uh, Middle Ages, what have you. This is the Arak that was a member of Helix, uh, the, the team that used to fight Infinity, Inc. And what's happened is he is a descendant from the original Arak, Arak Red Hand. In this new times, he remembers all of his previous lifetimes. And so he realizes too that he's been one of the villains for a while, but he wasn't always such. And so he works with the Manhunter cult to try to redeem himself and become a hero again, which means colliding with Machiste. And you also get the little background of the Rimco action figures. Arak was also in that line. And so we get to play with that. And of course, anything involving characters from Skartaris involves Deimos, the evil sorcerer. So he's around in the background, but we'll deal with him later on. So this is a book written by Grass Green with art by Ernie Cologne and covers by Richard Corbin. It's the Remco-verse. <laughs> this could be my darkest series. People are going to say, oh, Cisco, you decided to go Vertigo and then you gave us two books that are basically superhero books. We don't get it. We don't see it. Well, how about this? Set in the present day, Machiste is a masochistic, would-be vigilante who is going out at night, not so much to fight crime, but to get hurt. So he's so extreme, he cut off his own hand and replaced it with a spiked ball. He has friends in the SNM scene who are worried about him, and the series looks at kink in a positive light, mostly, with a tortured machiste uh, as an example of someone who's gone way over the line. I want this to give off a, uh, a kind of scratchy, angsty, Dennis Cohen vibe in terms of art. The better to play the story off as a psychological horror thing mixed with its uh, lurid pulp elements. That's my <laughs> that's very far from what you're doing, but not not so much in a way because it's still there's still an underground an underworld, uh, you know, a secret world to explore. Next up is Madam 44 from fantasy to cowboys. Uh, this is my answer to Two Gun Mojo with Madam 44 instead of Jonah Hex basically. Gene Walker is still a western Robin Hood, but if she's uh, named after the guns, it's because they were forged in hell. We all know the dead man's gun trope, where an item is cursed so that each user is killed and the mantle and curse are passed on to the next person, etc. Well, it's a dead man's gun. And when the 44 is passed to Jean, the curse can't affect her. I, I guess men should be careful about making a grab for the guns. Uh, powered by the souls of previous users, they never run out of ammo, and they're also the only thing standing between the West and the ghosts of all the outlaws buried in it. Basically, Madam 44 has to exact justice on the bad guys twice. Once when they're alive, then later again when they're spirits. Bit of a supernatural Western for me. 
What about you? My book is also called Madame 44. Jeanne Walker-Tain quit being a robber to raise a family. You know, she shacked up with Johnny Thunder, who never fully gave up being a vigilante himself. You know, he's still kind of fighting the bad guys. Well, eventually Johnny Thunder runs afoul of cruel regulators and their murderous Indian control. This group is led by a Yule Brenner stand-in, less magnificent seven, more Westworld. Johnny's killed in front of his wife, staining her hair with his blood. She manages to get the children to safety. We bring in a bunch of obscure, like really obscure Western characters, like The Deserter, which is, I think, only ever been published in Canceled Comics Cavalcade. I wanted to go deep into that. She, of course, is going to try to seek vengeance against these regulators, but they're actually manhunters. They're manhunter robots, and she's in the Old West. So, you know, with the weapons she's got, she's not going to be able to defeat these guys. So what she's going to have to do is team up with the more fantastical characters in Old Western Times, probably going to run into guys like uh, Rip Hunter along the way as well to try to find a way to stop these the Manhunters. But not just that, along the way, she also attracts the attention of the Illuminati, Vandal Savage. She's going to have a run-in with Jason Blood. Uh, I'm drawing from this one issue of Swamp Thing that I'm sure a lot of people read during, the, I believe, the Rick Veach run where they did a team-up of these Western characters, but within the Vertigo style. And I'm kind of playing off of that, too. You know, she's going to hook up with Bat Lash again, a guy who she had dalliances with and probably almost wrecked her marriage in the early days. Very much a weird Western, Wild Wild West kind of thing. So a little sci-fi, a little horror. It's going to be written by Wendy Lee, who's probably best known for having written Lady Justice for Techno Comics, and drawn by John Paul Leone, with covers by Earl Norum. Okay, Madame Xanadu, then. Is this also... Vertigo style for you? Actually, it's chaos style. I want to really embrace the 99 in times. And so we're not going to deal with Madame Xanadu. We're going to deal with Mistress X. And so DC is going to get the bad girl action on. One thing I think is notable is that Catwoman was one of their success stories of the 90s. In my experience as a comics retailer, there were people who bought the Catwoman series that would not touch a single other DC book. And that was almost entirely down to Jim Balin's artwork. Baylet ultimately left first to work for Chaos on Purgatory books and then eventually to start Broadsword Comics, which is what he does this very day. So instead of losing Jim Balin to the indies, I figured, well, let's bring the indies to DC Comics and make Mistress X DC's Lady Death. And if you're going to do Lady Death, you might as well get the guy who co-created Lady Death. We're going to get Stephen Hughes on this book. Essentially, it's going to be along the lines of the Chaos titles. If you've never read those, very strong 70s Marvel horror heroes vibes, a little bit of the sword and sorcery type stuff in the mix as well, and frankly, a little bit of professional wrestling too. You know, you've got a lot of anti-heroes. There's almost never any pure good or pure evil. There's always a mix. Usually, you've got some Satanism and stuff in the works. And also, in researching Madame Xanadu, there was a, a period in the 90s I really wasn't paying close attention to her. I tend to think more of the Kaluta covers from the 70s, where she looks like she could have been in Fleetwood Mac and stuff. Well, at one point, she was the lover of the Spectre, and it turned out in the Illustrator run, she was actually using him and drawing power from him. At one point, she sells her immortal soul to Neron, but because she had tricked herself into immortality out of death, she's not going to have to worry about that soul since she's not going to die. And in return for it, she got these giant familiars, these giant dark wolf things, problem being that she had trouble controlling them. So even though she had power 
she was too dangerous to be around. And that was something that was basically forgotten about once you left the 90s. That also undermining quality to Madame Xanadu. I understand that in the 2000s when they gave her a Vertigo series, they had her involved, I think, fairies, and they gave her more altruistic motivations. When Ostrander was writing her, though, she was something of a femme fatale. She was somebody who was, you know, trading in sexual favors to get these powers, which seems like a, a good place to be for a chaos-type book. So thanks to the changes in magic, she's actually far more powerful than she ever was. And one thing that was alluded to in the Ostrander stories was that she had once been a being a power who'd basically fallen on hard times. And so I'm pretending like the reason why she was helping people previously was she was essentially using people to vanquish demons. She would gather up some of that demon juice and make use of that. And that's where she kind of scrimped by on what power she had. Well, being one of the great sorcerers type people on earth, there are these sweet spots on the earth that the most accomplished sorcerers can tap into. So where most people who practice magic are in a bad place or, or having trouble getting any mana, she's actually more powerful than she's ever been. And so she becomes a player who's fighting all these bizarro, goofy type of chaos type monsters and being a mover and shaker within this fantasy DC universe. Uh, I will point out too that the book is written by Christina Z, who was one of the writers on Witchblade. I like Christina Z's stuff and and I thought it'd be nice to change it up a little bit. I thought if we brought Brian Polito, it'd be too chaosy. So we get a little bit of that Witchblade vibe as well. So it's sexy, it's dark, but it's also fun and crazy and action-packed and sorceress and just everything you'd expect from a chaos ersatz title. I've never even read a chaos book. <laughs> they kind of seemed like they should be in brown paper bags <laughs> back in the day. So that's interesting. Each issue of my Madame Xanadu, a supernatural series, would be titled after a tarot card, starting each arc with a major arcana and then a minor ones. The minor ones would be the other chapters so so that the deck lasts longer. The final point being 78 issues based on that decision. The covers would act as custom cards, like a collectible version of Dave McKean's Vertigo Tarot. The writer who accepts this challenge, you can say, I don't cast the, the creative teams, but whoever accepts this challenge will be weaving a Sandman-like tapestry around Xanadu's storefront in Greenwich Village. As people come in to have their fortunes read, they might need help, and I think we'll build a heroic cast of agents around Xanadu for such purposes, or even recruit from the ones that get helped, a bit like Night Force. And other times, these clients uh, must be stopped before their vile futures happen. And because she's always been around, as shown in, in that Vertigo series you mentioned, the tapestry can take us backward and forward through history as well. Kind of a urban fantasy book on this one. Now, we get a lot of female characters uh, in this issue. The next one is Mademoiselle Marie. I really liked Checkmate's take on that character, making her a legacy that different French heroines took on across history. So I want this series to go deep into that, follow different Mademoiselle Marie's since even before the revolution. Vertigo already has that tradition of tapestry-like titles that can jump around and even leave their main character behind. Here we have the Mature Readers label that would also allow for some in-depth historical stories, having a, I don't know, a trans woman in the role at one point would be interesting, as well as, you know, of course, the mature language, the sexual situations, the violence. This series would uh, would span history and have this, it would not be just a French resistance thing. For you? Mine is stylized as MLLE, the abbreviation for Mademoiselle, probably subtitled Les Mademoiselles Marie. I wanted to show the different experience of the French in the post-war period. 
I, I'm not interested in a war comic. DC put out hundreds and hundreds of war comics. France is somewhat overlooked. And I think it's a really unique situation because of the Vichy government. Essentially, the French government allowed the Nazis to take over to protect France and, frankly, themselves. You've got these resistance fighters. They're not just fighting the Nazis or the fascists or what have you. They're also fighting their own countrymen. And eventually, the resistance does, you know, retake the government. And now you've got all these people that were literal traitors to their people who were in power for a period of time. And you're, and you've got people who, you know, favor those people who did not commit any criminal acts. So they're not held it to account, but they were still believers in, you know, what the Vichy government were doing. And so it's very hard for somebody like Mademoiselle Marie to exist in that environment. Since this is a person who's very strong morals. She's also somebody who has lost a lot, not only, you know, years of her life to fight in these wars, but the one love that she had in this time period was Frank Rock, an American GI, who was uh, notoriously died from the last bullet fired in World War II. So what life does she have? Well, the first thing she does is she starts hunting down the worst people involved with the Vichys and with the, uh, the Nazis. But that's a few years. But what happens then? Well, she is somebody who is, again, a resistance fighter. She's somebody who, even in the resistance, had to deal with sexism, with ideologies that she didn't believe in. They just were united against the Nazis and the Vichy government, but not necessarily working together. So she has to figure out a life of her own. And having developed an identity based on being a resistance fighter, one of the things she resists is the French. She goes into French colonies and she uh, builds up guerrilla movements. She becomes this international woman of mystery, a self-styled sort of Jane Bond or La Femme Nikita, you know, roaming the world, right wrongs in, in the spy realm. She also has to think, well, okay, I've doing this for a while, but maybe one day I'm going to want to start a family. We get to see her have a relationship with the name namesake Alfred Pennyworth, the one who will eventually uh, become, you know, Batman's butler, but this is a generation or so removed. We're dealing with the late 40s, early 50s here. So just kind of dealing, playing around with that world. Written by Elaine Lee, who's best known for Starstruck and Vamps, another Vertigo title. Drawn by Cynthia Martin, probably best known for Star Wars, the, the last artist on the Marvel run. Inked by Dick Giordano. And I really wanted Darwin Cook to draw this book, but if I'm going to stay with the rules of the game, he really didn't get into comic books again until 2001, 2002. So for now, he's just going to dip his toe in with the covers. Yeah, I like the art piece that you've chosen. Uh, although if I can make a note, <laughs> your grammar is... Um... Oh, I assumed, I, I, I just, I knew in my heart and soul that you were going to have a, a Franco uh, notation for me. Well, if it's Mademoiselle Marie and it's supposed to be La Mademoiselle Marie, I, I don't know why the article is necessary at all. It's a bit odd, uh, but if uh, you do use it... I'm ripping off the Nikita, that's exactly why. It should be L-A. It should not be L-E. Feminine article. I knew I was I was treading on, on dangerous ground with anything related to the French, so I, I knew I knew it was coming. I was just waiting for it. Couldn't let it pass. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, that takes place in the past. I quite like the this concept, but let's jump more than a thousand years, unless you suddenly decided that Magnetic Kid deserves to be in the contemporary era. This was one of the ones where I went with a radical departure. Oh. There's nothing to, to do with the 30th century here. The book is called Polarity. It's an erotic paranormal thriller. Think the early novels of Stephen King or the early movies of Brian De Palma, Firestarter, Dead Zone, that kind of thing. So the premise is, after spending a metaphysics-obsessed 70s on dead-end ESP research, the government is about ready to pull the plug on all that stuff. But then they discover what they call polarities. Essentially, if you take like a low-level telepathic or a clairvoyant and you get them in the room with the right person, it's going to spark power. They're basically going to feed off of each other. And so now the goal is, well, we need to figure out who to put together. And one of the people that helps with that is a cultist named 
Timothy Carnes. Essentially, he kidnaps one of the polarities and the polarity triggers off of him and it, it creates an incident. And that's how they know about this stuff. So they start putting people in rooms and seeing what will happen. Well, one kid in Germany suddenly decides that he's the reincarnation of Beowulf from the ancient, you know, poem. Uh, another kid in the United States, he becomes incredibly brilliant, one of the smartest people to ever live. His name is Martin Champion. Uh, you can see some groundwork being laid here. We're still in the late 70s, early 80s. These people are probably going to come up again. So they're trying to figure out how to control these polarities, how to exploit them. They bring in people like Jervis Tetch to help with, you know, early experiments in mind control. They bring in Anthony Ivo because you're going to need handlers for these guys beyond the usual men in black because these guys can make people's head explode like a scanner. Uh, you've also got, frankly, elements of the government that are manhunters, manhunter robots, who, of course, see both value and threat in these polarities and aren't sure what to do with them. In France, you've got Mademoiselle Marie is still involved with her government. Uh, in her series, she had actually helped to smuggle Alexei Luthor out of Russia, and he ended up staying with the French and working with them as one of their great super scientists. Of course, he will eventually have a descendant in Lex Luthor, the industrialist in the United States. That's a whole other thing. They have their own ESP program, and there are elements in our government that would like to stop that. In the USSR, they have formed the Poleski Institute in Siberia, which I believe would be familiar to a Firestorm fan, for instance. So I think that's where Pozar came out of, or perhaps... Uh, some other, you know, super people of the uh, USSR. Soyuz. Soyuz. Yes, there you go. Also, you know, because of the stuff that's going on, you uh, attract uh, domestic attention to a detective in Denver, Colorado. John Jones is wanting to find out why the industrialist Lauren Jupiter has an interest in what they are calling magnetic kids. And so he gets tied into all this as well. Eventually, you even have some escape from the program and find their way to Madame Xanadu. So essentially, this series is going to help to lay the groundwork for a bunch of other stuff that happens in the other titles. So I'm not sure if it's going to be an ongoing or not, but... One of the important aspects is they do determine that at first they think that the romantic relationships are the way to go, but ultimately they find out they get more power from antagonistic relationships. So all these governments, all these dark actors, these bad actors are constantly manipulating these kids and creating situations where you get stories like, you know, what happened to Palma's Fury, where these kids are pitted up against each other. You maybe even get some Akira type situations. So very uh, uh, excitable uh, circumstances we're finding here, but also a little bit of a safety net since it is a period piece. Uh, this one will be written by Kate Worley, who's probably best known for working on Omaha the Cat Dancer, drawn by the great Russ Heath of all those classic war comics that uh Mademoiselle Marie would have appeared in as a for instance. And the covers will be by Jose Gonzalez, who did a bunch of stuff for Warren, most especially Vampirella. Uh, the art that I have in the piece here is a Russ Heath, but there is a table of contents to come that will have a Jose Gonzalez gatefold cover for folks who want to see the more thriller aspect of it. Okay. I like those movies, so I might like this series. Magnetic Kid for me, uh, also not 30th century. Quirky superhero adjacent title taking place in the present day. Paul is a college jock who pisses off the wrong person one day and finds himself cursed with an altogether too magnetic personality. At first, he thinks he's lucked out. He's getting all the girls, the big NFL contracts, etc. But soon, he can't find a moment's peace. He can't uh, handle all the attention and the grudges that result in his having to refuse some, some of these people. It's celebrity gone wrong. Can he ever find the person he wronged? To lift the curse, that might be tough because the universe doesn't manifest itself as a discreet person very often, and that's what had happened. So the book has this monkey's paw thing going on that acts as commentary on the world today and also a metaphysical quest 
That could lead to later chapters where Paul jumps through hoops to redress the situation. So completely divorced from the Legion stuff. Now, the next character, Mal, that was the toughest one for me because I'd already done a Guardian riff when we did the G issues. And the Herald stuff, the Hornblower stuff, uh, was not really inspiring. So uh, in the end, this is what I'm doing with it. Mal Duncan is now running a support group called the Malcontents which is also the title of the book. It's a sort of anthology series in which various disused heroes tell their heartbreaking stories about falling into limbo, metaphorically, at least, but who knows. You could even do a final issue twist where you find out that you're in the limbo from uh, Animal Man. The format is pretty loosey-goosey with some characters' stories dovetailing into others or the group deciding to get up and do something about it, but then they get taught a harsh lesson about why they've been retired. And we don't have to stay with the therapeutic circle. We can go home with a character and so on. Some characters you'll recognize, some will be created for the series, Mal and Bumblebee would be the only real regulars, at least at the beginning. So this is a sort of the a Tom King series, <laughs> I guess. I was literally going to say, oh, so you're going to do Heroes in Crisis done right. Okay. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe that's it. <laughs> what about you? It's funny. We, we talked a little bit about this uh, when you were still trying to crack it. And uh, in part of my research, I read through John Ridley's The Secret History of the DC Universe. And one of the great things about that book is it's recontextualizing. It's basically critical race theory as a comic book. It's recontextualizing a lot of these stories that featured minority characters when DC started actually trying to do those. One thing that's somewhat disheartening about the series is that Ridley basically uh, whiffed on Mal. He's the character who, despite being a titan, despite having decades of history, being one of the earliest characters of color in DC Comics, never really seemed to get over with anybody. And even really kind of wrote him off and said, look, if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. So him and Bumblebee are just going to go off and make babies. And we're just not going to worry about the superhero stuff anymore. I went a different way. I wanted some big damn superhero action. So Going back to the very first Mal story, it's called Penny for a Black Star. And it's like, well, this guy's never had a cool superhero identity. Black Star seems like kind of a neat one. So the basic story when he's introduced is Malcolm Duncan. He grows up in a place called Hell's Corner that I think they eventually retcon into being a part of uh, another bad part of Metropolis. Uh, he has to deal with racists. At one point, he gets caught as a kid and beaten in an open field, and it gives him kinophobia, where he has a fear of wide open spaces. In that period of the Titans, they had an instance where essentially they're Martin Luther King, they're Robert Kennedy. They're, there's a great man who's going to help bring about the age of Aquarius who gets killed on the Titans watch. And so full of remorse, they get rid of their superhero costumes. They take up with this industrialist guy, Mr. Jupiter, and he basically puts them through the paces and tries to retrain them to be better superheroes. And one of the things he does, he gives them each a penny and he sends them into the ghetto to, okay, let's see how you get by with just a penny in hell's corner. And one of the first things they come across is these racist dudes named the Stormtroopers messing around with this little black girl. Turns out to be the babysitter of Mal. And when the Titans come to their rescue, they don't understand they're messing up the delicate ballots in this neighborhood. And they put Mal in a position where he's got to fight these guys, causes him problems. Well, while he's staying with them, there's going to be a spaceship launch. They're going to send a, a spaceship to Venus, if I remember correctly. He goes and becomes a stowaway on the ship that's going to Venus. 
Uh, ultimately, the Titans are like, oh my god, we can't let that happen. They get into another rocket, they catch up with the rocket, they save him. There's this whole thing with aliens, they bring him back to Earth. And then, of course, he goes through the whole cycle. He's Hornblower, he's Herald, he's Vox, he's Guardian. He goes through all these superhero identities, they have this whole thing which Ridley addresses where he has an inferiority complex. Nothing seems to be working for this guy. But he also keeps having these bizarre circumstances, like he wrestles with an angel, and it you know, gains Gabriel's horn, he has all these weird religious experiences where he dies and comes back or if he ever gets defeated in a fight that he will die it's all this crazy involved stuff it seemed like they kept throwing stuff at mal and nothing would stick so my idea is he missed his destiny the whole plan was he was supposed to go into outer space and ultimately end up on the classic judaic concept of the black star saturn these aliens that he ran into were supposed to take him to Saturn, and that's where he was going to meet his ultimate destiny, where he was going to meet the actual god Saturn and also commune with Jehovah, with the god of Abraham, and finally get these, you know, mix of sci-fi and supernatural powers to become the Black Star, where he gets to have the cape and he gets to have all these cool sonic powers. He flies around and he gets into fights with people. Instead of giving up on this guy ever making it, he eventually um, is going to make his way to Saturn. And the way that's going to happen is that his little sister starts dating this kid from Harlem named Luther Mankin, who had a very special alien friend back in the 80s by the name of Jim. And Jim had his own little special lady who got stranded on Earth and then completely forgot about forever. Well, Luther knows where the lady love of Jim is and wants to get her and Jim back together again. Jim in this time period has been drafted by Luthor's Justice League and he's been messed with mentally. And so Luthor's like, look, sorry for using your sister to get to you. I know I did a whole Sadie Falk thing like in Starman, but what I need you to do is figure out a way to get Jim back to Saturn where he belongs. And by getting back to Saturn, Mal finally gets his reckoning. He finally gets to become the hero he was always intended to be. And so this is a book that's going to be written by Dwayne McDuffie, drawn by J.J. Birch, also known as Joe Brzezowski. <laughs> the many identities of Joe Brzezowski. You can see, hey, I chose J.J. Birch for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Also a person who struggles with his identity in this comic book universe we all live, live in. Uh, and finally, something, you're right, that Mal never got his due and uh, is just a failure of the imagination, maybe. And I decided to focus on the failure and you decided to focus on the on the possibility on the potential i like it next up is uh the well the other half pager on that same page malajiji the uh the magician from eric son of thunder it's like the all francais version i'm just gonna go with the flat guttural malajiji myself so the book i came up with was disillusion and i want to play not only with the idea of a lack of illusion, but also phonetically, it sounds a little bit like a dissolution, things like that. So this is the flip side of Madame Xanadu. This is the slums of uh, the fantasy world, or as I like to call it, Fantasia punk. It picked up strands from the weirdo verse. Dan Thorsland in the late 90s saw that you had this hole in the DC universe. Essentially, all those dark fantasy horror concepts that used to be part of DC, part of its tapestry, all got moved over to Vertigo. Right. And so you had series like the Spectre that very much felt like a bridge that like, okay, you got the superheroes over here and you got Vertigo over here and you got these people that are kind of playing those gray spaces in the middle, but just the Spectre alone feels a little 
isolated. So they try to come up with a line of books to sort of support the readership. Oh, you mean like there was like a Challengers of the Unknown and revamp? Yeah, was like Night a new Force, Night Force. Yeah, okay. They scare tactics. Right, right. Um, and, and they tried to cross those books over a little bit, but it didn't really work because they all had their own identities. The one crossover they attempted to do in the year and a half or so that this line was going on was involving the Amethyst, where basically Amethyst, who in her own books had gotten involved with the Lord's Border and Chaos, and she'd been absorbed into the gem world, and she'd gotten spat out and had fights with Mordru. This is another one of those uh, unresolved plots, is Amethyst for some reason turns evil, and she takes the forces of gem world, and she turns them into shock troopers who have like emerald uh, rifles and such, and they're, they're Gestapo essentially, and they're going around messing around with these magic characters. Amethyst, whatever happened with that? Nothing ever happened with it. So we're going to address it in this line. We're also going to address a lot of these threads that were left over from the books. Like you had this turn of the century tension going on, uh, all these apocalyptic omens. So if Challengers was X Files, Night Force was more like Millennium, much darker, more grislier, you know, messianic twins being taken out of the womb, all this really dark stuff. We're playing around with that. We're basically, because the magic has gotten screwed up on Earth, all these people that are tied to the supernatural are hitting hard times. And what's worse is, one thing you do still have with magic users is the magic itself may not be flowing, but they have it in their bones, you know? So you essentially have manibalism, where if you can get a hold of these mystical beings, you can kill them and and derive mana from their marrow, their bones, their meat, what have you. You can basically have the raw stuff of spells from these people who used to have magic in them, and it's only uh, this residue now that it can be exploited. All this magic is going back and forth between the, the superpowers, what I like to call the Ouroboragarchs, the old magic money, right? One thing that happens is it screws around a lot of the magic spells that were pre-existing. And one of those is that making people forget about their past life. Instead of past life regression, we have past life uh, recollection. And so you'll have a hustler like Matt Healy, who's been working on the subway in Atlanta, doing like three-card money and stuff. All of a sudden, he remembers Charlemagne. He remembers Arak. He remembers all this stuff. And he knows that he's in danger. He, he's already having people kind of coming after him. So he's got to get out of Atlanta. He's got to get away from people like Death Trap, uh, a.k.a. Master Jailer, who's you know, capturing people because he, he's, he feels like they're you know sullying the reality that he's embraced. He goes to NOLA because, of course, uh, New Orleans has all that voodoo magic that he can get in touch with. He tries to reach out to Swamp Thing about you know finding a place to derive his own magic. So this guy is basically just slumming it out in the more obscure corners of the DC Magic Universe. Books written by Steve Gerber. Let's not get fake 70s Marvel weirdness. Let's go to one of the sources of Marvel weirdness of that time period. It's going to be drawn by Seth Fisher, who's probably best known for doing the Green Lantern Weird World graphic novel, a lot of Vertigo stuff. Covers by Alfonso Espiri, worked extensively with Heavy Metal Magazine. My Malajiji, I've, I've turned him into a horror host for an anthology called Weird Fantasy Stories. So each issue contains one to three weirdness and horror tales that take place either in history or in made-up fantasy worlds from DC Comics past or invented for the story. I would allow uh, serialized tales of characters like Stalker or Nightmaster or Dragon Sword uh, in there as well, but these would be one-offs. You'd get your arc and then, uh, you know, you'd switch it up. So all of this, of course, by different creative teams with some written by famous fantasy novelists for extra cachet. 
purely for for marketing purposes. But the framing sequences with Malajiji are also part of an ongoing narrative because we see him deteriorate morally and physically throughout the series, leading to some kind of Arak story where Malajiji has been corrupted by Satan or something. I leave it up to the writer. That's my Malajiji. Next up is Manbat. And I went back and forth on this one. And I know you cursed my name for including him originally. And then I walked that back at some point because in my own notes, uh, I'd put him as a bonus book eventually. And I wasn't going to use him. And then I put him as a bonus book. And even earlier, I said it was 5 out of 18, but it's actually 19. So it means it was actually 6 out of 19. So uh, even my notes are incoherent on this point. When we talked again, you'd included him. And I said, oh, okay, then I'll put my bonus book up into the main body of the line. Uh, and that's the story of why Man Bat is on here, because you could say he's a villain. Uh, he also has his own series. So my Man Bat, a gothic horror feel in this one, with shades of Frankenstein in there, the island of Dr. Moreau, even Dracula. Those kinds of stories are kind of mixed up in this. It's an existential body horror creature feature that tries to give Langstrom better motivations for wanting to become Man-Bat, like trying to counter Anton Arcane's own weird creations, but things quickly spin out of control with the back alleys of Gotham as a battleground for inhuman monsters. So just put an artist on it who can design bat variants and unmen that are upsetting to look at, and half the work's been done. What a perfect setup for my take. The Monster Society. So this is going to be a 70s witchcraft, Satanism, movie-style take on the property. I'm thinking like Mephisto Waltz, but also much more fantastical as well, given that we're referencing the Monster Society of Evil. So... My first exposure to Man Bat was from the Power Record, which I don't know if you had that one as well. I know Rob Kelly did. No, I, I have none of them. Did they not make it up to Canada? I, I never saw them. I never bought them. The Power Record had fantastic Neil Adams artwork and some histrionic line readings. And so that probably colored my perspective on Kirk Langstrom some. Langstrom, if you, if you don't know, he's a guy who was super fascinated by bats, and he eventually extracted this gland from the bat to make himself have bat powers and unintentionally turned himself into the man bat, which is a crazy thing to do. But, you know, things happen. It's the DC Universe, right? He's That was a mess, but that's over with now. We can move on. Except he doesn't move on. He just keeps messing with this stuff. Not only does he mess with it, but again, going back to Power Record, he makes his beautiful bride, Francine, he makes her become a man bat or a woman bat, whatever you want to call it. Because he keeps abusing this stuff, they have kids. And one of the kids is a part man bat type person. All this stuff. Why would he keep doing this self-destructive behavior? Why is he so focused on bats? What I came up with, and again, it's definitely informed by the performance from the Power Record, maybe we're all focused on the bat and we're not paying enough attention to his interest in all those pictures of the bat man. Maybe the reason why this guy keeps wrecking his life by doing this stuff that can't do nothing but harm is because this isn't necessarily the life he wants. Maybe he's becoming a man bat because this perfect life of having a cushy job in a museum and a loving wife and all this stuff, maybe that's not really what he wanted, in fact. Francine eventually finds this out because he does eventually slip up. He, it's all a uh, homosexual subtext, essentially. Like, you know, he was doing all this man-bat stuff because he wasn't happy with the man that he was. And what he really needed to do is just settle down with a, a, a fella and, you know, take ownership of himself, take ownership of his identity. That's not an identity that Francine grew up with. She was a standby man kind of gal, but this is a bridge too far. This is one thing she's not willing to understand. And not only that, but Francine, she's going to go full Kramer versus Kramer. She's like, you know what? I'm done with this. These kids, they're yours. This life, it's yours. 
I'm gone. I'm out of it. She faces repercussions for that. You know, her own family essentially disowns her because like, how can you just leave your kids behind? No people understand her. She decides she wants to go to someplace nice and clean. She goes to the Midwest. She ends up in Fawcett City, but she can't get work. She's uninsurable. Everybody knows about Mandat. Everybody knows about the connection between Kirk Langstrom and Mandat at this point. You know, the guy was a superhero at various points in time. So she's trying to start a new life and nobody will give her the chance. And plus, let's be honest, she's a bigot and she's got some issues. So she eventually finds herself with the one person who seems to understand her, this woman named Dora Keen. What she doesn't know at first is that Dora Keen is known as Darkling. And you probably don't know who Darkling is. And I mean, you the listener, because we're going, you know, so deep it isn't even in the who's who, so deep it isn't even in the encyclopedias. Darkling was part of a group called the Confederation of Hell. They only appeared a handful of times, mostly, I think, in digests in the early 80s. This is a group of Captain Marvel villains that included Ibak, Masterman, and most importantly, Sabak. You may not know Sabak's secret identity, but he was the cultist that was in the Polarity book. This is a guy who is essentially the satanic Captain Marvel. His name is derived from various incarnations of Lucifer, all that kind of good stuff, or bad stuff, as it were. And this guy works directly with Satan. That's where the Confederation of Hell comes from. So Francine, who's been rejected by all these people in her life, she's a person who sees herself as a moral person and a righteous person, and she's gotten nothing but crud as a result of it, and she hates the state of her life. And these people understand her. Well, guess what? She's suddenly kind of open to Satanism. She's kind of open to hanging out with the bad guys. And Sabak, not only does he have all this cool sorceress power, but he's also a technological genius. This guy goes back to the 1940s. He was working with the Nazis. He's making all kinds of cool equipment and stuff. So he's not only going to take advantage of her having taken some of the man-bat formula with her in the divorce, but he's going to create her as something even greater than a man-bat. She's going to be technologically enhanced. She's going to be, to quote a text from 1909, once all the bats were confined in hell, they still have wings like the devil. One day, someone left the gate open and they quickly darted out and escaped to earth, which some people believe is the origin of the phrase of like a bat out of hell. So she's going to become a devil wing and join the new monster society. The book's by Caitlin R. Kiernan, who's probably best known for the Dreaming series at Vertigo. Again, we both have a little bit of that flavor in there. Drawn by Carlos Meglia, best known for Cyber Six in Argentina, his native country. Here in the United States, he's probably best known for drawing the comic books that Superman fans hated the worst art-wise. He did that very big cartoony take that they just absolutely rejected. And the covers are going to be by Juan Jimenez, who's done a lot of stuff in humanoids, including uh, your beloved Alejandro Jodorowsky's Meta Barons. <laughs> Yeah, we both have Vertigo because we're both doing a 90s riff, essentially. You've mentioned the Manhunters, and we've gotten to that point. So there are two heroic Manhunters to cover. What's your first one? Your What normally would be the, the Dan Richards one? Very tricky, because especially being set in the 90s, but even if it weren't, these guys are long dead. In terms of relevancy, even if they weren't dead, Dan Richards is not relevant to 90s comics. He's not relevant to modern comic books. I considered doing a period piece. I wanted to make sure that I didn't completely abandon the idea of Martian Manhunter being a centerpiece, as uh, Sibio Garling would call it, a dynastic centerpiece, right. where he's like the top dog in this whole extended family. So what I have is Star Hunters. My take is we're not going to do Steven Spielberg. We're going to do George Lucas's Munich. We had the Manhunter cult, who were derived from the Manhunter androids. And these were the prototypes of the first attempt at a universal defenders, universal police force created by the Owens. Of course, they turn evil and they end up wrecking all kinds of havoc. 
Well, if you go back to the Mark Shaw 80s Manhunter series, in the last issues, they introduced Mlasa, this big Yeti-looking person. They don't really tell you what he did to the Manhunters to cause them to become genocidal, but I'm going with the idea that the Manhunters were designed basically to just deal with the worst criminals, the people who just did the most absolute awful stuff, and the people who were threatening whole planets and, and things like that. They're not really built to be, you know, to, to draw an analogy with police. They're not social workers. They're not here to, like, deal with disputes and stuff. That's what the legal system's for. That's what social workers are for. And because Nlasa tries to reprogram one of the Manhunters to address the petty offenses that happen between living beings, organic beings, it basically fries its circuits. That frying of circuits spread to the other Manhunters, and that's where they came to the ultimate conclusion that all life is evil, and so all life needs to be extinguished. Eventually, Nlasa went to the Owens and confessed what he had done, and and as penance, he gets all these cybernetic enhancements, and he's charged with, well, you started this, you go stop it. So he keeps creating all these armies of people to go after the Manhunter androids and destroy them. Millennium eventually happened, and they destroyed all the Manhunter androids. You know, they're, they're essentially wiped out. So that's not a problem anymore. And that leaves Unlasa and other people who'd been parts of the Manhunter cult, like Mark Shaw with... You know, a lot of time on their hands. And Lassa hasn't given up on basically social justice or cosmic justice. And he still has a lot to redeem himself for. Well, as it happens, while he's been living in a Himalayan castle for millennia, uh, another deep Arctic base suddenly appears. Zanzor, the White Martians. Uh, they try to take over the world as the Hyper Clan. And Lassa, having ties to the Owens and the Manhunters, immediately recognized who these guys were. And so once everything gets settled, he makes his way to Zanzor and essentially presents himself to Marsh Manhunter as like, look, I, I know this place. I know how these things work. What can I do to help you? What can I do to make things right? And Manhunter has, at this point, decided to no longer have the Martian in his name because of stuff that the White Martians, he's just going by Manhunter now. And he's essentially reclaiming his trademark. He's going to be the only Manhunter around. So whatever you want to do, you can work out of Zanzor if you want to. You can, you know, rifle through my files. You can call some of my friends. But you're not going to be a Manhunter anymore. So Star Hunters. We're going to borrow the old 70s uh, DC trademark, use the logo, everything else like that. Unless is going to go after all these guys that, that want to help but aren't really classically team members. So among them, you've got Connor Hawk, who was just getting ejected from his role as Green Arrow, and he's my favorite of all the people who've been Green Arrow. Uh, you've got Chase Lawler, the guy who was the Manhunter in the 90s Extreme Era. Arek, as previously mentioned, to tie into the other books, you've got the modern incarnation of the Mademoiselle, who is the child of Marie and the Unknown Soldier. And because of her interest, or their interest, I should say, in uh, myriad identities, they end up getting tied into Dumas, the arch-rival of Mark Shaw, where uh, they can actually change their appearance, change their gender, and so while called the Mademoiselle, could just as easily be the Monsieur as needed. Uh, you've got the Magnetic Kid, who is one of the last survivors of the Polarity Program. Madame Rouge, who is a descendant of Madame 44, and uh, you know probably a number of other Western heroes over the course of history. Definitely a Pistolera type of person. Uh, essentially, there is that one Manhunter left that we all are familiar with, Laurel Kent, who's off in the 30th century. We know this because Mono has managed his way to the 20th century with a defective time sphere. They need to get Alex, fix the time sphere, and go deal with Laurel Kent to fulfill their, one of their purposes, which is to hunt down anybody who is part of these 
you know, fascistic regimes, the Manhunters, the White Martians, any of these bad guys. Basically, everything's getting connected at this point. Uh, an evolution of what Mademoiselle Marie was doing in the 1950s. We're going after these bad actors who may be toppled, but they're still around to infect places like uh, Argentina, for instance. This book is going to be written by Steve Moore, who worked extensively for 2000 AD, was apparently an influence on Alan Moore, and Alan Moore had him draw, uh, write a number of his ABC books in the time period. It's going to be drawn by Steve Lytle, and in a change-up, instead of doing the covers, it's going to be Nick Cardi doing the covers to the series. Okay. My Manhunter titles are they're much simpler. The first one is called Manhunter. It would take its cues from Sandman Mystery Theater, a gritty pulp thriller where beat cop Dan Richards and his ugly dog Thor go beyond the bounds of the law to track the most despicable human monsters. Serial killers and fascists in the days before America joined the war effort. The entry mentions how he graduated from the academy at the bottom of his class. So this isn't going to be easy for him. Uh, and it's entirely possible he fails more than he succeeds. Pyrrhic victories are the order of the day in this one. For the second Manhunter series, the book is called Leviathan. And it's a violent super spy book filled with intrigue and real world commentary with Paul Kirk and Kate Spencer as two of the organization's Manhunters, elite agents supplied with high-tech equipment to handle a superhero active world. Mark Shaw is at the top of the organization, but he's not our point-of-view character. So basically, think of this as a mature reader's version of Checkmate, and no, Bendis isn't allowed to write it. And that's my final decision on that point. But you have another Manhunter series, presumably. And it can't be called Manhunter because of that whole Martian Manhunter thing. Correct. And because... At this point, this is before Kirk DePaul's been created in uh, Kirk Buzik's power company. So there's, there's, you know, there's nothing to do with the Paul Kirk identity. There's not much to do with the Dan Richards identity. So we have to work our way down through the Manhunter lineage to Mark Shaw, one of my favorite of the Manhunters. He's going to reclaim his old identity of the privateer. He's basically decided, I'm done with cults. I'm done with the Crusades. I'm done with the Suicide Squad and Amanda Wall and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to have a regular life. I'm going to use my skills to make money. You know, I try to be a bounty hunter. That got a little bit crazy. I'm going to go work for a company and I'm just going to do like security and things like that. Well, he gets back with the uh, New York sergeant that he was romantic with in his own series. He starts working with Nectrodyne Industries. Things are going good. He's got a nice new costume. He's, he's living his life, the best life. Uh, the problem is, number one, he gets transferred to Star City. And that means that he's suddenly having to address all the crazy villains that the Chase Lawler character used to have to deal with. He ends up getting contracted to go after the niece of Dan Richards, Harlequin, one of the last surviving members of the old Manhunter cult. But furthermore, at the end of the Chase series, he took on the uh, demonic force called the Wild Huntsman into himself. That happened during the Underworld Unleashed crossover, and guess what? He just turned around and said, hey, Neuron, I've lit my candle. Get this thing out of me. He got to deal with Neuron and, you know, the devil's coming for his due as well. Now, all of a sudden, he's got to get involved with Star Hunters where he doesn't want to. His girlfriend dumps him. He's got all these people that he's got to fight now that, he, you know, weren't even his villains. He's the mole for Neuron in the Star Hunters. He's going to be used to help manipulate things as the Star Hunters get involved in the grand schemes that are taking place in Fantasyland. It'll be written by Lynn Ween with art by Dave Cockrum, inked by Jim Mooney, who inked him on Soul Searching and Company in that time period. And just to give it a little bit of a, a 90s veneer, we're going to have Jason Pearson do the covers. Back to fantasy. A couple of uh, fantasy chicks here. 
Mara, what do you have? I went extra big on this one. I actually went out and got a, a literal commission for this one. Oh. So I've got a revival of Primal Force. And essentially, Mara, of course, had all these adventures in ancient Atlantis with Wind and Lady Cheyenne and Orion and such. But obviously, she's not around doing stuff anymore. What happens is she's a shapeshifter. She can become dragons and all this other kind of fantastical stuff. Well, at some point, for some reason, she becomes a common pooch, probably because as Atlantis was sinking, the Age of Magic was ending. And that's when we became the rational technological world that's familiar today. So she stuck as a dog for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and if you read the early 90s orion the immortal miniseries she's basically just his pet you know she there's a gal in the the apartment complex that old orion lives in who's feeding mara this whole time so even though orion eventually becomes like you know jim morrison again she's still stuck being a dog this whole time well because of all the weird stuff that's happening with magic because of the fall of solaris and the outcasts invading you know our world mara finally becomes a human again but now that she's a human again, she wants nothing to do with any kind of shape-shifting. And Orion's the one who's messed up because he's got amnesia. All of a sudden, he's in the, on the Malajiji spectrum where he's, you know, used to be one of the, the lords of Atlantis, and now he's just a schmuck. So he's relying on Mar to help him. Now, luckily, they also have a chaos lord that uh, works in the deli down the street that used to be one of his enemies, but now they're kind of buddies. And he helps to get them in contact with Dr. Mist who would have been a rival to Arian back in the day. He's another immortal. He's another power player. But he's also having troubles. With all the changes in the world, with all these changes in the sites of magical power, uh, Dr. Mist is involved with the laymen, this group that their whole thing is to deal with power lines of magic. And now the the sites have shifted. The, the roots have shifted. He's without power. There's all these new players coming that are threatening the world and threatening the universe. He needs a new group of laymen. He needs to basically reform Primal Force. And so in order to do this, he's like, well... You've got all of these fantasy-type people lying around. Let's go gather some of them. While Mara will not become a dog, she does still have a nose for magic, and she helps to guide them to these fantasy characters. The easiest one to get is Nightmaster, the other Jim Morrison wannabe, who happens to be living in New York and working out of the bookstore that he built out of Oblivion Incorporated, the Dimensional Portal. He helps them to get to Louisiana, to Courtney Mason, Anima. She's also probably a descendant of Mara. We'll play around with that a little bit. In Yuma, they run into the stalker, the soulless stalker, who turned up in one of the Mark Miller written Swamp Thing issues, which uh, a lot of people interpreted as meaning that all these fantasy worlds were fictions that were in the mind of Nightmaster. But I, I think that was a misinterpretation. I think that Nightmaster was just able to call these people via Oblivion Incorporated. And he, he basically got the first wave of outcasts who were suddenly expelled from their fantasy worlds and trying to figure out how to make life work in our land. Some of them have magic, some of them don't. That's why these guys are willing to work with Primal Force, because one thing they can work is a sword. And that's what these guys need right now. Eventually, they make their way to Asia where the former Starfire, now going by the name of Wakanda, is fighting against sex slavery. Well, she joins up with them. They go to Hong Kong. Dr. Miss used to have this guy named John Chan who worked in the original Primal Force. This guy's cursed with a demonic hand that's really good with a sword as well. So Claw's going to join the group. Eventually, they end up in Germany where the full-grown Beowulf, the guy who was triggered by the polarity, you know, fully embraced his dragon-slaying ways. And they're all going to team up to battle Maldor the Dark Lord, who is trying to, like, the dark world that uh, Garn Danuth inhabited, that was like the place of pure chaos and dark magic, it's coming closer and closer to Earth. 
And Maldor, who himself at one point became a dark dimension, he basically erupted into this whole dimension because he had been driven mad by Superman. He is trying to connect his dimensional qualities to the dark world and really open up the chaos within this realm. They've got to try to stop him. This is a book by David Anthony Kraft. He's probably, again, another one of those proprietors of weirdness from 70s Marvel, probably best known for working on The Defenders. It's going to be drawn by George Tuska, but you can hardly tell because you're going to be inked like crazy by Sonny Trinidad and that uh, glorious Filipino style that I love so much. And we'll also have covers by Brad Green, the very talented artist I commissioned to draw these characters for your and my entertainment. Yeah, and Maldor the Dark Lord, that is a character that um, I'm surprised anyone would want to bring back. I tried my best to incorporate everybody from the issue of Who's Who. Yeah. They may not be able to do it verbally, but in the solicitations, you should be able to find some reference to all the characters in the issue. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate the effort. For me, Mara, it, well, in Buddhist mythology, a Mara is a demon, a demon that inspired actually two episodes of Doctor Who, Kinda and Snake Dance where the Mara is some sort of snake-like entity. Well, DC's character Mara can turn into a serpent-like dragon, I guess. That's my link. So I uh, call this book Snake Dance, and it's a cross between a Buddhist fable and an urban fantasy novel. The Mara in this uh, story is second-generation Chinese, has violently rejected her parents' culture and religion. It's made her the host for a Mara demon which uses her to disrupt people's quests for enlightenment, essentially. She's not really aware of it, but the reader can see the effect uh, she has on people and society, and the question is whether she can take control of the monster inside her before it's too late. And that's the dance the title refers to. Visually, this is a book that will look busy and cluttered when she's around, but full of zen-like open spaces when she's not. So whatever artist is on this, they need to be good at at both styles. And then we have Mariah, a uh, warlord character, and it's my shortest pitch in the, the line. Uh, I call the book Skartaris Knights, and it's a mature reader's version of Warlord starring the Russian saber expert slash archaeologist instead of old Travis Morgan, who may not even exist in this reality. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than DC's Red Sonja. I would redesign the costume so that uh, it's a bit more functional, but otherwise, that's the pitch. Travis Morgan is presumed deceased in my storyline. He apparently died in DC 1 million, but in comic book yet. We'll see if that actually sticks. My book is called Monsterland. It's a supernormal political action thriller. So again, you've got uh, Mariah Romanova, who was originally from Russia. She was an archaeologist and found her way to Skartaris via Travis Morgan. When she went into Skartaris, there was still a USSR. When she's coming out, we've got Glasnost. So she's kind of lost, but obviously she was going to gravitate to the motherland. She gets a job at the Polesky Institute, which is no longer Siberia. It's now been relocated to St. Petersburg. She's not out in the middle of no place. She spends a lot of time hanging out with her elderly aunties who are all like commie, Black Hawk, and young All-Stars villainesses talking about like the time that they dressed up as Hitler's daughter for no good reason in the 1950s, all that kind of Nazi stuff. Also at the Institute, she's befriended by Dr. Orloff, who is the creator of Red Trinity. Uh, from the Flash books, trying to get as many of those unused Soviet-era uh, characters as possible from the DC comics. Orloff is having some problems because he's, he's being asked to do some unethical stuff, the kind of stuff that he's not supposed to have to do anymore. But, you know, the KGB just morphed into a whole other entity. You've still got red shadows in the halls of the Institute. You've got this one evil colonel uh, from the I Vampire books I've got involved with stuff. They're basically, they're taking the more monstrous characters uh, from 
Russia-based stories, and they're messing with them to try to create a supernatural army. Well, Orlov disappears, and so, you know, being a woman of action, Mariah goes hunting around, seeing what's going on with these you know, dark, deep labs inside the Institute. She finds her old friend, Mikola Rostov, who's being used as a guinea wolf, I guess. Uh, at one point in the Warlord series, he was a, a werewolf. Eventually, Jennifer Morgan was able to use her magic to take the, the, the lichen qualities out of him and turn it into like a spiritual wolf. But very much like Man of Xanadu, he wears his emotions on his sleeve and the wolf responds to that. And that makes him a very dangerous person to be around. So in the Warlord books, he kind of goes away. He was one of the characters who had an action figure in the Warlord toy line. So of probably one of my favorite action figures of all time. So of course I've got to do something with Nicola. You know, Mariah's got to rescue him. He, he's her ex anyway. He had been her lover and a fencing instructor in Russia. They're not going to be lovers, but they are going to be friends. So they're going to go through this, the, all these, you know, characters like great people like Boris from the JLA embassy, negative woman, all these people that were heroes and villains with Soviet ties, people's uh, heroes, Soyuz. They're going to try to find allies. They're going to run into enemies. They're trying to figure out how they're going to be able to survive in a Russia that's turned against them. Well, guess what? There's a reason why it's called the Monster Land. You also have the Monster Society with an interest in this program. They've sent the Zuggernaut, who's what part of the new Monster Society after them, way bigger than a guy with a spirit werewolf and a woman who's really good with a sword can handle. So they've really got uh, some problems coming their way. We'll see how it works out for them in a series written by Drew Hayes, best known for Poison Elves, drawn by Al Rio with inks by Mark Campos, and covers by Michael Turner. And I like the pun. I like the title's pun. Well, from <laughs> the old world, Russia, to the fourth world, where I don't know what you did with it, but our next entry is Mark Moonrider, one of the forever people. One of your favorites, nobody else's. Well, I defend them. I won't say them <laughs> forever people are my favorites, but I do defend the book as, as part of that fourth world universe. It's something replaying to an audience of one, although I'm pretty sure you're going to end up rejecting it by the end of things. Old Mark is going to become Moonrider for his book. And, uh, you know, I'm playing around with all these uh, late 90s DC crossovers. Might as well get into Genesis as well. Again, uh, everybody's favorite. Okay. <laughs> Those who don't remember, you had the God Wave, which essentially emanated out of the source across all of creation. Ultimately, what ends up happening in the Genesis event is that a bunch of the uh, Greco-Roman gods who were split into two different beings reintegrate and uh, find new properties as a result of that. Uh, one of the people who does that is... Zeus, who uh, merges with Jove and becomes more powerful as, as a result of his interacting with the Source Wall. While all these people are playing around the Source Wall, including the High Father, Ares decides to betray them, murders the High Father, and uh, tries to take all his power from the God Wave into himself. All the heroes get together to fight him. He ends up getting confined to the Source Wall, which used to be a pretty big deal because people who were on the Source Wall never came back out again. Ultimately, New Genesis is uh, commanded by Tachyon. They try to get Mr. Miracle to take his father's place. He's not really into it, so Tachyon ends up doing it. But also, they have some migration of their own. The wizard Shazam, who of course had been one of the earliest superheroes and sort of one of the earliest demigods, although really it was always clear that he was deriving power from demigods to become an ancient hero, He's the over it. You know, he's been doing that for long enough. He's gone to the new Genesis to sort of retire or to deal with more cosmic stuff than just the kind of stuff that he was dealing with on Earth. This isn't my idea. This is straight out of the comic books, by the way. Ares Mars escapes. Essentially, Ares and Mars merge together, and that gives them the ability to take an already fractured source wall and break loose of it. Again, this is from John Byrne. I didn't do this. Ares escapes. 
And, you know, this is a guy who killed High Father. So, of course, Sony's going to do something about it. So, Tachyon sends his big guns. Orion and Light Ray back to Earth. And Shazam, not having been able to contact the Marvel family for a while and worried about them, he goes off with them as well. And he ends up falling into a trap. Problem number one is Ares isn't on Earth. Ares is on Mars. That's his planet. All these deities and magical beings have taken up residence on all these planets. He's wanting to expand his domain by going to Mars. It's got his name on it. And also, he knows that there are outcasts, there are these fantasy beings all throughout the solar system and all throughout the universe. They're all going to be getting into fights soon enough. He's the god of war, so he might as well find a nice base for himself to start manipulating all these conflicts that are going to be going across all the universe. You know, just in case, and at the suggestion of Shazam, Tachyon decides to send the forever people to check on Mars. Not a great idea. They're swiftly ambushed by Mantis. Mantis is also working with a bunch of other people under the command of Ares, like the Manhawks and the Saturnians, specifically the White Saturnians from the Gem series, the bad guys, they get wrecked. Super Cycle's gone. They're all captured. Some of them are near to dead. The only one who manages to escape is the leader, Mark Moonrider. You know, he doesn't have a mother box. He doesn't have any way to get a hold of anybody. The one thing he thinks is, well, look, the Wizard Shazam is right there on Earth. It's the nearest planet to me. Let me just call out Shazam and see what happens. The Wizard is unavailable, but he does hear the call. And he says, okay, well, look, here's what I can do for you. I can't give you my power my power isn't mine to give at this point. What I can do is I can connect you to the Infinity Man, this guy that you call, you trade places with, uh, Captain Marvel style, Marvel Captain Marvel style. I can't bring the Infinity Man to you, but I can bring you a portion of his power. So Moonrider is going to use the now magical word. So Moonrider is going to get a portion of the Infinity Man power, going to have a cape, going to have a fantastic costume, fly around, punch things, that sort of thing. That's what he's going to use to help him fight against Ares. Ares specifically is a house guest in Castle Carmang on the Olympus Mons, a.k.a. Mount Olympus. This is my... my Startling character find of 2021, who I believe originated in 1978. I just happened to stumble upon the Superman versus the Shazam treasury, which just happens to have a white Martian sorcerer in it. That's kind of my thing. So it's like, oh my God, I'm doing a, a crossover involving guys like Martian Manhunter and Captain Marvel. How do these two mingle together? I don't know. Maybe there's a white Martian sorcerer from a Shazam book from the 70s. Awesome. So this dude is Carmang the Evil. And what he did, he's from a million years ago. And he was an unethical scientist, very much in the mold of Krona. And he does the experiments that everybody tells him don't do that. And what he ends up doing is he kills two billion white Martians in this time period. And these two billion white Martians don't forget about it. They haunt him. He's haunted by their ghosts, constantly accusing him. In order to quiet these voices and being a madman at this point, the whole plan of the Treasury Edition was he was going to smash Earth-S against Earth-1 uh, to kill everybody and use that power to resurrect the Martians he killed so they wouldn't be mad at him anymore. Well, his plan here is to smash Mars and Earth together to quiet the voices because he's just a nut bar. And so this is part of the, the, the conspiracy that's working against the entire universe. Um, so this guy is another power player. And so Moonrider, even with the power of the Infinity Man, is going to need help. It's a good thing. But it turns out there's another prisoner there besides the Forever People. Ares has his brother Hercules bound in the castle. So that's another thing we're going to have to deal with later on. This is a book by James Chambers and Lucia Shepard. These are guys who worked at Techno Comics, were novelists. It's going to be drawn by Tom Sutton and feature covers by Moebius. Mine is called Moonrider Forever. It's a Grant Morrison-style, high-concept, fourth-world book in which the Forever People have all grown up and they've become full gods. 
Beautiful Dreamer is the new goddess of dreams. Big Bear is god of strength. Seraphin of, we're going to say, frontier taming or something. <laughs> but Mark doesn't know what he's a god of. And his comic is a quest to find out. In various issues, he tries his hand at different concepts and either he fails or he doesn't like it, or he's confronted by the actual god of that domain. So it's a somewhat goofy book, you know, for Vertigo, but uh, no more so than Doom Patrol or Animal Man were. And, well, here we are, the Martian Manhunter, our marquee character, and I have to put him in the Vertigo mold, in my case. So the book is called Manhunter from Mars, and it features John Johns on a film noir version of Mars, either before he left or in a reality where he never did. I guess you could say it's Hawkworld, but with the Martian Manhunter in it. I want a lot of world building, uh, shadowy art, an allegory for real world events where the White Martians, John and his police force hunt, are second class citizens. And you're pointedly asking if they're terrorists or freedom fighters. Uh, though, thanks to the vertical label, we don't need to have anything be black and white, cut and dry. A lot of gray zones in this one. And John may have trouble coming home to his family with his head held high at the end of the day. A lot of grit in this one for me. Yours is called Manhunter, as previously advertised. Yeah, so as everybody knows at this point, this is the whole reason why I wanted this issue in the first place. At this point, like, I became a Martian Hunter fan around 97. Like, I don't, I've been familiar with the character for years. He was one of my favorite, absolutely my favorite superpowers action figure. But I wouldn't say that I was, he was a character I'd buy a comic book for because it just never seemed to work out until I became a, a big fan of his in the late 90s. And that's why I love and interest was writing on that 98 series that ended up not really working out for me. I didn't want to do the Manhunter series I want today. I wanted to do the Manhunter series that I talked about on the DC message boards in 1999. You know, that book that I wanted. There's also some residual qualities from when I wanted to figure out how to make Manhunter Splash big enough to where he could carry a whole line. So the book is going to be launched by Mark Miller and Frank Quitely, but any amount of research will show that Quitely can't do a book for any length of time. And Mark Miller... My strong feeling is that he became the person we know him as today, essentially the shock jock of comics, because of the failure of Superman 2000 and his inability to be Grant Morrison. So he decided to become something more like Pat Mills, have that sarcastic humor, dark humor and stuff. So I'm borrowing from his uh, continuation of Authority. That was a book that people didn't think that Warren Ellis and uh, Brian Hitch could be topped. And then the new creative team came on and kicked it up to a whole other level. He's not going to quite go that far with Manhunter. There was a, a momentum behind Miller doing a book. But of course, once he actually puts the book out that's anything like the Authority in the mainstream DC line, Paul Levitt's like, get this guy out of here quick. So he's only going to get to do some of the initial stories. So you've got the zero issue just as it came out in 98, but instead of it being a retread of his post-crisis material, it's going to be an examination his time as an African-American in the 1950s and why he ultimately chose to become a white male authority figure in that time period. Then you have the one million issue and, and that's going to show this long, deep future of the Manhunter and how much more powerful he's going to become and all the adventures he's going to have. And uh, with this creative team, with Frank Quietly, it's going to have a bigger bang to it. So that's going to help to launch him. Then you finally get to the first issue. DC 1 million, they blow up the city of Montevideo. And ultimately, the International Ultramarine Corps takes the place of the Global Guardians, builds Superbia, which hovers above the ruins of Montevideo. And they are more aggressive protectors of the globe than the Global Guardians had been. They're trying to make sure that, say, South America isn't getting exploited by corporations, which, you know, the corporations don't like that. Also, the U.S. government doesn't like this potentially antagonistic 
party so close to their own country. So they're inclined to turn a blind eye when the conglomerate is reformed out of some really despicable people modeled after the Americans in the Authority series who just absolutely molest and do horrible things to the Ultramarine Corps, which Manhunter, who's of course been dealing with these guys since he is essentially the Superman of every place that's not the United States. He's, he's got bigger recognition in places like Asia and Africa than Superman has. He can't stand for that, so he's going to go, and by doing that, he basically gets on the government's list. He's persona non grata. He has the JLA essentially have to disavow him. He's not going to be part of the America part so much anymore, but he's still going to be a huge global force. We're going to see him do things that I wanted to see done back in the late 90s. Like, for instance, they turned Maxwell Lord into Lord Havoc through these bizarro means and made him a villain. Well, he's not irredeemable at this point. So when he tries to hack the Watchtower, the Manhunter is going to stop him and, and try to figure out how to get the Max Lord out of the Lord Havoc while the JLA are giving him the stink eye. They had a storyline in Just League Task Force where the body of Despero was controlled by the little robot Elrond through a collar. And Elrond eventually began to see himself as a human boy who is falling in love with Gypsy. Well, it turns out that this fixation, this fantasy about being a human was all created by Despero, who's slowly reasserting control over the Despero body. So there's going to be a big clash over that. And that's how Gypsy's going to become an ongoing supporting character in the series. You're going to have Manhunter go to Venezuela to follow up on magic stuff that's going on that Bloodwind alerts him to. He's part of the Conclave. We're going to have a, a new Hyperclan show up because if you read the old JLA comic books, they miscounted. There were uh, several white Martians that were never accounted for. And so they're going to work with Carmang the evil and make the new hyper clan that Manhunter is going to have to deal with. Just all this stuff. We're going to have Oberon join the sporting cast. We're going to have the, the cute robot Elrond join the cast. All the stuff that I really wanted to have done that never got to happen in the Manhunter series, make him a part of the greater DC universe, but also expand the DC universe into other territories, other countries. Let's see how big the world could be. He's not the Manhunter of America or the Manhunter of Mars. He's just the Manhunter protecting the globe. Now, you've mentioned Martin Champion earlier. And now we're up to his series. What happens? DC had a small book about sports that had Champion in the title. The Atari logo was right there. Guy's named Martin Champion. It's a video game-derived property. I'm going with Atari Champion. So essentially, as established... Uh, Martin Champion was one of the magnet kids and the Doogie Hauser of the bunch. If you read his bio from the old Atari mini comics, the dude is a brilliant scientist, an Olympic gold meddling athlete. Just he's incredible at everything. He's Doc Savage, right? They are very specific on dates in those old Atari books, the original ones that came packaged with the cartridges. So in 1999, Martin Champion was going to be on a mission to the moon. They had basically established the first lunar base, which was attacked by an unnamed enemy uh, at the start of what became the Five-Day War, which created this sort of post-apocalyptic scenario on Earth. The reason why Atari Force, the original group, had to go out and find a new Earth for us to inhabit. While Martin Champion and uh, Lydia Perez are on this lunar base trying to save these people that were attacked and stranded there, Martin finds himself. He finds Martin Champion. But now in his 40s or 50s, this is the Martin Champion that we see in the later Atari 4 series, the grizzled sort of uh, a Captain Taylor version, the, you know, the guy who's lost his faith in humanity and, and is dr- driven to extremes by his hatred of the Dark Destroyer who murdered his wife, Lydia Perez, during childbirth and all this kind of stuff. Well, he sees this guy and this guy has this alien device. He uses his brilliant mind to investigate this thing, what we would call a flash drive. But for them is, is this device with an extraordinary amount of memory, like whole megabytes of memory. Just, and so on this flash drive is the diary of Martin Champion telling the life that we know of 
from the Atari 4 series, a life that our polarity Martin Champion hasn't lived yet. It feels like a prank. I don't believe in any of this stuff. I've got a job to do. I'm going to go ahead and get these lunar base astronauts back home. He proceeds to do that. It turns out that Atari is one of the evil corporations. In fact, the evil corporation that we see in the Star Hunter series from the 1970s. These guys are aligned with the Blood Legion, who are some of the baddest of the bad, the guys who are trying to wreck the universe. Uh, they are part of this cycle of eternal heroes and eternal villains. And this artifact is a way of touching onto the aliens that are the good guys, the ones who are trying to stop the Blood Legion. They are called the Somai. And the way that they do this, they killed Donovan Flint, I believe his name was, from the 70s series, in order to rebirth him as their champion to fight a blood legion. Well, guess what? Martin Champion is going to get blowed up potentially as well and resurrected as their champion in modern times to fight against the encroaching darkness. So uh, this is going to be a book by Nicola Cudi, uh, Jim Bakey. It's going to be inked by Gary Alangalon, uh, who is also going to really dominate Jim Bakey. He'll be doing the covers as well. I have a real fondness for the Filipino artist, and he's going to bring that flavor to it. I like how this is a licensed comic for Atari, but Atari's evil. It might be evil in mine as well. Martin is uh, an Atari programmer who has vivid, sometimes waking dreams about being a space opera hero, to the point where neither he nor we know what's real anymore. Uh, his golden age was the arcade era, but now he's older and he's letting the young Turks pitch ideas as if Atari had remained a concern, basically, while he flies a desk, essentially, in the real world. Or if it is the real world. Surreal, but techy. There's some real-world gaming industry stuff thrown in for verisimilitude. We're touching on themes of video game addiction, things like Gamergate. We've seen a lot of stuff come out you know, about the wrongdoings by video game companies, that's going to be a major part of this, exposing that kind of culture in what seems to be the real world. And then we also have these um, references to asteroids and, and other video games that, that Atari had put out, you know, back when I was a kid. So that's mine. And that's the actually the end of my Vertigo line, because the other two titles, I cannot stomach any kind of adulting of these things that we've seen uh, in comics in the past 25 years. Talking about the Marvel family, first of all. As I was writing my entries, DC announced that it was giving Mary Marvel the Shazam role with uh, amazing Doc Shaner art. For once, we seem completely in sync, DC and I. So uh, this is rare. But Doc Shaner is on my Marvel family book, not my Mary Marvel book. I really, really don't want to call it the Shazam family. I guess that's a thing for the lawyers to, <laughs> to hash out. I still call it Marvel family. Anyway, I want this to be an all-inclusive Earth-S Heroes book with Doc Shaner art exactly like the Convergence book he worked on. And in addition to the Marvels that we see here, uh, including Hoppy the Marvel Bunny, I would like to see the characters of Hero High from the Kids Superpower Hour show in the early 80s, which was really my entry into uh, the Marvel family. Cloud Man or Bust. I don't know if anyone else remembers these characters. I want to see them in comic form. I want to see them return. And I want it to be lively and fun and light. But exactly like that Convergence book. I thought that was that captured. I could not understand why Shazam comics were so terrible when people could actually produce 
this, you know, in the middle of the 2010s. Anyway, that's mine. What about you? I have to say, I agree. If you go back and you read the classic Shazam comics, the classic Marvel Family comics from the 40s, they're great. It's just like Plastic Man. I really love the DC character, but the Jack Hole original, I was converted by Art Spiegelman. It's fantastic. But you got to go back to those original stories. It's from the best comic book ever produced. Certainly best golden age comic books ever produced. And in fact, one of my goals going into this was that I was going to essentially let Manhunter have the reign over most of the line, but I wanted to do like a super kid-friendly, a joyful a Captain Marvel book as well. But the demands of the crossover made it a little more adulterated, but not too bad. It's just not as, as broad-based as I had originally intended to go for. So the great thing about this being set in 1999 is it just so happened there was already a, a Captain Marvel book, The Power of Shazam. It ended with issue 47 of all things. You at least take it to 50. I, I, I hate it so yeah. much when they do stuff like that. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it to 50. Well, obviously the book was getting canceled, so you're going to have to jazz things up. You're going to have to give it a reason for existing. So you're going to have to make a pretty big splash. So that's what we're going to do building up into 15 going forward. As I've mentioned many times, you've got all these memory recollections happening. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these guys show up, all named William Batson, a fat one, a tall one, a hillbilly one, you know? Well, it turns out these guys were Lieutenant Marvels, but they're old, they're elderly. Well, the reason why they're elderly is because it turns out, again, another retcon, Captain Marvel started out in the 1940s. There was a Captain Marvel in that time period. There wasn't a Superman in the Golden Age, but there was a Captain Marvel. And this kid was the product of this prophecy, okay? Essentially, the Book of Job is based on a rivalry between the Lord Neron Shazam, the wizard Shazam. Basically, Neron wants to corrupt all of humanity, just like the adversary is supposed to want to do. And so he's got this challenge where Shazam's got to give a champion, all this power, and see if it doesn't corrupt them. And it always corrupts them, every time. And every time they get corrupted, things get worse and worse and worse for humanity. They get further and further into the darkness. And then they find Billy Batson. And again, one of the little tweaks I have is you've got, if you go back to the original stories, Billy Batson is taken onto the subway to Shazam by a man in green. And the Jerry Ordway series had retconned it where it was the spirit of his dad who looks just like him and all this stuff. I'm not a fan of that conception. If you read the comic books, Billy Batson and Captain Marvel are two different guys. They're not a grown-up version of Billy. And I think that's one of the things that messes the character up. Like, I couldn't even finish that movie because it's uh, Zachary Levy doing a horrible teenage boy impersonation. It was nails on chalkboard to me. They're two different guys, right? You've got this guy in green who's creepy and weird looking. Why would his dad look like that, right? Because it's not his dad. It's Neron. Neron is the one who took Billy Batson to Shazam because it's all part of this challenge. Problem being, Billy's an actual good kid. He actually does the right things with the power. He even shares the power. It's not enough for him to be a good and wise, super powerful dude. He's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to give this hillbilly some power. I'm going to give these surrogate uncles and stuff some power. And these guys had that power. Well, Neron just loses it. And so he manages to find a way to cast a spell that suspends the Marvel family for decades. And they come back around the time of crisis. And everybody forgets they ever existed. And so that's how you had a golden age Marvel family. Neron is, of course, doing his level best to destroy the Marvel family. He's been doing it since Underworld Unleashed when he's introduced. We find out he's apparently been doing it since the 1940s. You know, Captain Marvel is starting to get his own memories of the, that period, he realizes that he's going to have to do something to basically stop Neron and his plot. There's another problem. Not only did Billy start to get his memories back, but also Mr. Monster's Monster Society of Evil 
started getting their memories back. They had just prior done a Monster Society of Evil four-issue story that was extremely lame and, and small and pathetic compared to the original story from the 1940s. We're going to get closer to that. And that's how we come up to the Confederation of Hell. We're not going to have Mr. Mind's Monster Society this time. We're going to have Sabaks. We're going to have Satan's. Because again, literally, Satan was the guy who was commanding this guy around. And so that's how he's building up his new Monster Society. And these guys are not messing around. They're coming after the Marvel family. They're coming after the heroes. They're coming back to the Earth and the greater universe as well. So they just start whacking a lot of these Fawcett characters that have been brought back in the series. They, they get Bullet Man, Bullet Girl, Spy Smasher. They're all gone. Now they managed to ambush the family because just before the series ended, Ebenezer Batson, who in the original Power of Shazam graphic novel was the person who kicked Billy onto the streets in the first place. Well, he's working with the Monster Society against the Marvel family and everybody gets separated. Captain Marvel is kind of on his own, but he finds out something else too. One more revelation. Captain Marvel isn't Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel is a being of power that goes beyond just our universe. He's one of these guys who's part of the multiverse. Uh, multiverse, I know, is a dirty word in this tier period of DC Comics, but again, we've got all this going on in Superman books. We've got him becoming like a, a god again. So everybody else is going to get bigger as well. He's not Captain Marvel anymore. He's Lord Marvel. And he's going to become one of the lords of our realm, defending it against the encroaching darkness. And that's how we're going to finally get away from dealing with Captain Thunder or Shazam. It's like, no, the magic word is Shazam. He's just not Captain Marvel anymore. Now he's Lord Marvel. You can't major Marvel him because he's not in the military anymore. He's a lord. So unless you're going to King Marvel somebody, we, we've trumped you, okay? So he's Lord Marvel. He's going to go after Neron and beat him. Neron, by the way, is having all these power plays in part because not only is the Earth and the moral realm getting squeezed out by all these outcasts from the fantasy realms, but so is the underworld. You've got Grindel starting trouble. You've got DeGirth starting trouble. Neron's wanting his piece of the pie as well. So you've basically got a game war in hell, and that's why a lot of this stuff is going on. And Billy's going to beat Neron. We're not going to be dealing with this guy anymore. And that's going to be part of his becoming a greater, more powerful hero within the DC universe. He's also going to form his own team, the Squadron of Justice, out of Commando, who is a descendant of Commando Yank from the old Fawcett books, Windshear, who is the daughter of Bullet Man and Bullet Girl. They had Gangbuster from Superman Comics join the supporting cast, Well, now he's on the team. They've got a new Mr. Scarlet. They're all going to team up, and they're going to fight the forces of the Monster Society, who will be an ongoing threat that they're constantly having to fight off for years, just like in the old Golden Age comic books. I need somebody uh, with a little bit of name recognition and a lot of love for the, the property. So we're going to get Eric Larson to write it. Mike Wieringo, who was supposed to draw the book when he was going to launch in the ni early 90s, well, he's coming back. He's going to do the book, and Jerry Orway's going to ink him. It just so happens that in one of those DC catalogs, you had a promo image by Wieringo and Ordway. So I just changed the date on it. Now it's a promo image for my book. And just to make sure we put butts in seats, let's go ahead and get Alex Ross to do the covers. <laughs> okay. I notice that you did not mention Mary Marvel in this. What's going to happen to her? Mary Marvel, classic character, important to the history of comics. There is no Supergirl without Mary Marvel. Mary Marvel is not a great name, and it's not something you're going to want to put on a marquee. That's why lately she's been Lady Shazam. That's fine. That's nice. But I really wanted to have her own identity. She's part of the Marvel family, but she's not just Sister Marvel, which is essentially what she tends to amount to. So... Back in the 70s, you had the live-action sister show to uh, Shazam, 
Isis. Isis is in the public domain because it's an actual goddess. And I'm obviously treading on dangerous ground here, but we're going to go ahead and have her have the legend of Isis. So since we've already addressed a lot of the other Fawcett properties, we've also got Ibis and his bride. They're going to help to get Mary Bromfeld to safety because all the power has been taken away from the Marvel family. That's why they're in danger. The only person in the family who has power at this point in time is Lord Marvel, since even Shazam has gotten caught up in Neron's scheme and he can't lend his power anymore. That's why Mark Moonrider was on his own. Well, Mary's got to find her own way, her own power source, and Ibis is going to help her. They're going to use the Rock of Eternity to get to Pompeii and the Temple of Isis. She's going to call on the goddess Isis because she has to find her own patrons, not just the ones that Shazam had. And that's already a problem because those patrons are being altered by the changes in magic. Isis is amenable to working with Mary Marvel, but it's not going to be a situation where she's sharing, you know, time with a bunch of other deities. Mary's going to be the champion of Isis. Well, as it turns out, Mary Marvel, years earlier, had teamed up with Power Girl to send the evil Carmang into limbo. We're going back to the Treasury Edition and this tendency in the 80s and 90s where all those adventures that Supergirl had, she can have them because she's not around, so Power Girl doesn't have those adventures. And guess what? Power Girl was also retconned in being an Atlantean, and she also gave birth to a deified child who was a balance between light and darkness, so she makes perfect sense in this fantasy milieu. So she's the one who helped Mary Marvel send Carmang into Limbo at the end of that Treasury Edition. Well, you know what else they call Limbo? The Still Zone. So Carmang is the reason why the White Martians managed to get out of the Still Zone, which was never explained, and start the JLA franchise with that first story arc. Once Carmang came back to our world, though, he went to Mars, where he belongs, because he's got to be stuck in his castle, and that's when he began uh, working with guys like Ares to build up the army of bad guys who are plaguing all of the creation right now. Mara and Orion finally made their way to Isis, and it turns out that Orion isn't Orion. He's Tara Morgan. Her spirit has taken over Arian's body, which means that there's a bunch of other people in this universe that are not in the bodies they're supposed to be in. So not only do they have to gather a bunch of heroes to defeat guys like Ares and Carmang the Evil, but they also have to make sure they've got the right people. And Isis just happens to be one of her powers. She can detect the true essence of a person. She can tell you Taurus in Orion and so forth. Heracles, Heracles is up on Mars, except that Heracles is not Heracles. Deimos is in Heracles' body. So you've got Isis, Power Girl, and Primal Force. They're, they're going to try to address that, but they've got another problem as well. You've got the Emerald Shock Troopers controlled by Amethyst. What's Amethyst's problem? She got absorbed into Gem World. What's in Gem World? The Archmage. The whole reason why she turned evil in the first place was because she's been corrupted by this force that was within the Sorcerer's World in the, in the far future. Well, who's going to exercise the Archmage from Amethyst? Isis, of course. And that's how they recruit Amethyst into their group as well. It was going to lead us into our final title, the bonus book. Uh, this is a series that's going to be by Barb Rausch, who had done a lot of Barbie comic books for Marvel in the 90s. It's going to be drawn by Norm Brayfogle with inks by Joe Rubenstein. And we're going to have a cover by Gene Sinclair. Probably not a name familiar to people because he is another artist that I commissioned specifically to do a piece to show a lot of the stuff that's going on here. So you, you got a lot of team books or books with a big cast for Mary's own series. And I have no problem with her being called Mary Marvel. I'm pushing even more the humor and the whimsy and making her not only the carrier of the mantle, but older than Billy by many years. In her own all-ages series, he's a small child who doesn't actually age up when he speaks the magic word, but it still gives him powers. Because of his baby talk, he doesn't pronounce it correctly, so the wisdom of Solomon is lacking. 
So maybe he says, Shazam, or something, you know. It's up to Mary to go into action more often than not to rescue her baby brother or fix the problems he's caused. Elevator pitch says, Supergirl in the ninth grade meets Adventures in Babysitting meets the band Elseworld story with Super Baby in the microwave. <laughs> That's basically it. And now we're down to the bonus book. You said you had one. I do not have one. It used to be Man Bat, and then Man Bat got reintegrated into the line. So what do you have? How do we tie all of this up? That's a good question because I was still working on that at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I've got all these storylines that are going on. It's crazy. It's nuts. And I still don't know for sure how it all gets resolved. Very hard to synopsize. So instead of doing that, I'm just going to explain a product of too much research. A series that was advertised in the 80s that just looked so metal, including a really cool logo and everything, Lords of the Ultra Realm. In trying to figure out how this was all going to fit together, I ended up finally reading that miniseries after all these years. It was nuts. It had a Pat Broderick artwork. It was a good-looking book. Concept-wise, it had a lot of cool ideas from Doug Minch, but it got too big, and also it kind of, a lot of stuff that was cool about it got wiped out by the end of the series, and then tried to continue it afterwards, and it just didn't really work out. So I'm going to bring back the Lords of the Ultra Realms, and the basic premise of the Lords of the Ultra Realm is that you have Earth, but you also have all these other fantasy realms that are parallel to Earth, kind of like the old DC multiverse, uh, where you have these fantasy beings. And in the original miniseries, it was 12 beings. Six of them represent, or maybe 14. So half of them represent the light, half of them represent the dark. You have to have this constant balance or the entire universe gets destroyed. And over the course of the original miniseries, the dark starts to win out. The universe does get destroyed, and then it's reborn again into a different version of the universe because a new person becomes the overlord of the thing and, and recreates the universe in his image. Well, this has apparently happened a number of times, and that's why we've ended up in the current DC universe, which doesn't really support a multiverse, but obviously you've got the realms that did not collapse because they were true alternate dimensions like Mara and the realm of the nightshades and all these other uh, universes that do exist even in the post-crisis as alternate dimensions. Well, all that that is part of the Ultra Realm. The Ultra Realm is a fancy way of saying a multiverse. It's all these other dimensions that all coexist, but the foundation world is still Earth, and Earth is presided over by what they call archetypes, which are human champions that represent the higher deities on in the other parts of the realm and who themselves represent gods. With fantasy, you tend to have a lot of tropes, and so there's a lot of crossover between the concepts Minch had in the Lords of the Ultra Realm miniseries and what was happening in Star Hunters and Call Young Conquered and Starfire, particularly in Star uh, Hunters, David Michelini in the last issue of the book tied all these concepts together as part of one greater universe. And so I'm just expanding that to include all of these fantasy characters in a team not dissimilar from the characters from the toy line that I mentioned. So we've got Hercules eventually restored to his body. We've got Arek, Mikola, Travis Morgan eventually restored to his body, Amethyst, who is now a fully good person and a person that goes from child to adult. None of that stuff where she's finally grown and she's corrupted. She's a good kid again. So not only is she one of the lords of the Ultra Realm, but also she's going to be part of the new Marvel family with Moon Rider and perhaps Blackstar and the new Crime Smasher, which is Captain Marvel Jr.'s new role. All these guys are, are going to be intermingling with one another. Mashiste is the team leader now, though, because he's the one who's shown that he's got the organizational skills. He's the ruler. So it makes more sense to him to be a team leader than Travis Morgan, who's always a bit of a mess anyway, always had a messy life. And these guys are going to be combating all these Dark Lords on the other side of things. Plus, you've got people who are these balances like Power Girl's son, Equinox. So all this becomes part of 
the Ultra Realm, and going forward, all these cool fantasy concepts. Well, I'm saying cool. You might say, oh my god, this sucks. Quit talking, dude. But in one big event maxi series or one big ongoing series that embraces all these fantasy concepts from DC comics. I, I do get Atlas, the Kirby one in here as well, but I didn't have space to verbalize that because all these fantasy concepts are going to be active in this new DC universe or multiverse, I should say. That's uh, a lot to chew on and people can look at even more of that in your... Yeah, and I have to point out too that this is going to feature art from Brad Green, the same guy did the art for Primal Force. It was sort of a combo uh, situation where they they're supposed to be two parts of a whole, essentially. So let's now follow the well-established tradition that states we have only enough money to buy one series from the other editor's line. Well, I have to say I like Malcontents. Cool concept. I also was very much wooed by your Madame Xanadu concept because I love it when you take things like board games, like Checkmate, and you're like, okay, well, it's a team, but they're made up of pieces of a chess piece. So when you're saying, oh, it's a, it's a book that ties each issue to the cards in the tarot, it's like, ooh, but Obviously, the book I'm going to buy is the Martian Manhunter series, which sounds great, but I'm sure I'll still end up on the message board griping about it. <laughs> but you have to buy that one. That's, you know, that's uh, that's your thing. Well, and not only do I have to buy it because of my fandom, but also what you described is a book that I would want to read featuring the Martian Manhunter. So it's like, even if I wasn't a Manhunter stan, the stuff that I like about the Manhunter is already present in your book. So I, that's, of course, the book I'm going to buy. Okay. Well... It's interesting because your Manhunter book I was interested in, you're basically picking up after I quit comics that that first time. And I forgot to mention, too, that when, when the original creative team gets bumped off after a few issues, it's going to be taken over by Tom Payer and Bart Sears. Uh, I remember there was, a, there was a number of writers that I wanted in 99 to write the book, but for some reason, I really gravitated to Bart Sears. I really wanted him to draw that book, and I managed to find one of the very few images where it isn't Manhunter with a cape draped over his body talking to Max Lord or something where it's an actual action shot. So I had, had to have Bart Sears in 99. But that wasn't... I ended up uh, deciding on the very first book you pitch. CSA, I like the team, I like the concept, I like other Earths kind of stuff. Basically, I would uh, pick up that one if I only had money for one series. And it's funny too, because that was one of the vestigial series from the intention of doing a more kid-friendly line. That's why it tied in that way. So yeah, I think you still long for that universe that you created with your own Captain Marvel books. I think so. Dear listeners, it's time to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? If you like this content, also think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. I hope you had fun, Frank, doing this again. <laughs> fun, definitely, but it is definitely a form of madness. What I'm reminded of is I remember reading an editorial when Frank Miller was working on The Dark Knight Returns and he was talking to Dick Giordano and he basically said, okay, take this away from me. I can't revise this again. Just take it away from me. I can't do it anymore. I can do this forever and never stop. And while mine's probably got more in common with Holy Terror than Dark Knight Returns, I definitely get that sense of I could have kept working this for another several months because I got so involved in it all. So joy, sure, obsession more so, I would say. Yeah, whereas... I hacked it out three weeks ago and, and never touched it again. I mean, for me, it's an elevator pitch. For you, we're in the elevator, but... The power has gone out in the city, and four hours later, the fire department finally gets us out. And the producer's trapped in the, the, the hell-ovator with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, then, it's over. Until next time, who's editing? We, we are. are. Yeah.
and he's treated as sort of this green version of Superman. And we wanted to explore how he was different from Superman. So we wanted to explore some of his society, some of what made him who he is. You know, what were the values? If you can float up and down, then do you need stairs? If it's a society of telepaths, then how do you handle that in terms of respecting somebody else's privacy?